Hello and welcome. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whatever time you happen to be tuning in. This is the DC Comics News Podcast, and our weekly news cycle is completely interrupted by an amazing guest, uh, someone who, in a very short period of time, agreed to be on, talk to us about his art. I could give a big flowery thing, or I could just say, Lee Sharp. <laughs> Thank you for being on. Thanks for joining us. How are you today, sir? I'm very good, thank you. It's a beautiful day here in California, and I'm just taking the call outside because I've been stuck inside. So it's uh, I'm out in the yard, and we've got a townhouse that sort of looks over a golf course. So if you hear any balls bouncing around or people shouting for or whatever, that'll be what it is. But it's uh, it's just too beautiful to be inside. So, so yeah, <laughs> I'm outside enjoying the weather, which is marvelous. Yeah, it is a, a gorgeous day. Uh, I, there's something amazing about California weather where in the mornings you're never quite sure. And later in the day, you're just enjoying every little bit it gives you. And then thinking to yourself, can it be that good tomorrow again? <laughs> Let's find <laughs> you're, out. You're, Let's... you're really nearby, aren't you? You're, is it Thanks, Alamo? Seth. <laughs> Sorry, Steve. Sometimes I don't mean to rub it in, but there I am just pouring the salt. Like, what? What's the problem? Are you okay? Why are you making those sounds? Yeah, actually, I'm right over here in San Leandro. I used to live in Oakland. And I recently relocated. Uh, I'm I'm right off of the coast near. Uh, it's called the Heron uh, Bay Trail, and I'm this. Yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah. And where are you coming to us? You, you mentioned uh, townhome. You're with me here on the California no, I'm coast. In, I'm in uh, the East Bay too, so I'm I, I'm in Walnut Creek. Very nice yeah, place for me to do, is it? Yeah, you guys got some great burger joints up there and a few other fun <laughs> locations to keep in mind. Um. Yeah, we started getting some decent tap rooms over the last few years as well, which was good because that was lacking. But uh, it, it's it's been looking up, although, of course, they're all shut at the moment. But uh, Hey, <laughs> we've got the weather. We've got the weather, so it's, it's good. Exactly. Plus, they'll be there waiting for you when things reopen. You'll be ready for Absolutely. that. Absolutely. It'll be a grand reunion. Yes. <laughs> it will. It will. It'll be, be a fun one for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I think if you don't mind really quick, I'm going to move into everybody else's uh, questions, and we're just kind of going to do a round robin. But I wanted to good. point out something to sort of lead us off, which was the fact that I saw that you recently announced that you're going to be involved with the artist auction, which has been uh, arousing success. Uh, Jim Lee has been um, doing some amazing art. And am I correct that you're also going to be involved in some way? I uh, I am. I actually did it yesterday. Um, Jim posted on uh, Instagram. Uh, what an amazing thing he's done. I think it's, you know, it's getting, if it's not half a million yet, it's damn close to it. Um <laughs> And it's pretty profound what he's done. And the drawings he's been doing are just beautiful. So, you know, hats off to Jim Lee for, for that. And it's completely him doing it off his own back. Um, I approached him and said, look, I, I want to do something. And he said, you know, I, I haven't asked anyone to do it because I know you're doing it in your own time. But I, I, I would love for you to do something. So I I put, uh, he, well, he put a lovely post out and uh, Death said, Two got the big vote, so I had a complete kind of uh, um, nostalgic retro uh, day yesterday doing a Death's Head piece. And uh, yeah, I think I'll probably do another one too. 
I'm going to try and angle it so that people vote for for uh, Lobo. I really want to do a Lobo. I've never drawn him before, and it's like I just I've got this urge to do a Lobo. Man, can can the audience out there? Can you just hear him and give the man what he wants? <laughs> give the man what he needs. He's got a craving. We are all having cravings right now. Come on. Um, hey, thanks, well, man. I've... It's just it's just to kick loose and do something completely nuts, you know? Because the thing, <laughs> you know, it, you, that character was so ridiculous and. There's never been anything really quite like that, that, you know, that run, that classic run by Bisley and uh, Alan back in the day. So it'd be, it would be fun. It would be fun to do that. I think it would be, be nice uh, to see Lobo fighting Death's Head. For, might, I'd love to see that. <laughs> I would have to have Death's Head win, though. And that wouldn't that would kind of take some of the fun. Hell yeah. <laughs> Shall I say hell? Yes. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Well, thanks, man. That was my first question to, to start things off. I'm going to roll things around to everyone here. Brad, I'm going to start off with you. Uh, I'm sure you have a few in your uh, list there. Yeah, I'm curious. You have so much experience both as working collaboratively with uh, writers and uh-huh. creating your own work. So what, what are the, like the pros and the cons and the challenges and rewards for kind of both working with other people or creating your own characters and uh, and work it's actually it's a really good question because it it really does feel very different um the, uh, doing a book on your own and doing it with a a, a collaborator is uh, the whole vibe is different so the pros of, of working with a great writer and i've been really lucky especially recently with with greg and uh, you know, obviously working with grant is is incredible um the nice thing about working with those two in particular is they're really collaborative. You know, they, there's an awful lot of trust. Um, Greg and I used to talk every single week. Uh, and, and if he got, if he was sort of stuck with an idea or had a kernel of an idea and it wasn't quite clicking into place, he was great in sort of throwing out and inviting you to, uh, to participate, throw ideas around and, you know, come up with things which he, he would either incorporate or he would sort of take take an take the idea and spin it further, you know, and come up with something else. So it was always really interesting seeing how he evolved it off the back of our conversation. But Greg's just a delight to work with. And Grant, you know, the, the amazing thing, I think, you know, I've done 17 issues with him now and I think he's only asked me to change three things three tiny things in all that time and and every time it was mostly down to me researching the wrong costume from a previous character it's just i slightly misinterpreted which version um so you know it, it wasn't at all a dig and it wasn't in any way a kind of criticism of, of the storytelling or the art or anything like that it was literally just a, a function of the story so you know it's never it's never been a problem. It's been really delightful. And obviously that's uh, when you work with a team and it works that well, that's, that's, that's a big bonus and it makes it a, a real pleasure. And it's always fun talking to, to Grant. I talk to Grant less often, maybe, maybe sort of once a, once a month, maybe. And when we jump on the phone, we probably talk for like an hour and a half. Um, it's quite hard to get off the phone from Grant because we're both like, we could just talk all day. You know, He's very entertaining. And we get off and oh god, we go on all sorts of tangents, and uh, you know, it's it's only the time difference that often shuts it down. But um, yeah, so working on my on your own stuff is really 
different in that you miss the feedback. You don't have somebody um, looking at what you're doing and telling you. So you have to kind of, you miss the team effort. But on the other hand, it's really lovely to, because I, I love writing. I've, I'm a, a passionate writer. I've written a couple of novels and I've always written all my life. I could have easily, I think, had a life as a writer um, and been just as happy doing it. Maybe I might have even enjoyed it more, actually. Um, I, I, I try not, because if you try too hard to just draw stuff, uh, to write stuff that you really want to draw, then you're not really, you're sort of, and a pain service to your, to the easy stuff. You know, it's not, that's not about story then. That's just about, I don't know, it's, it's kind of, it, it's almost like just doing, I don't want to say fan art because that's not fair either, really. It, 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 it just means it, you've got to take it seriously, right? So if I say, uh, if I'm drawing Gotham or whatever, I'm not going to try and stimp on it or, you know, cut any corners. I make it hard for myself and then hate myself later is what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. It's it, it's That's really the difference. It, it, you do miss the team when you're doing it by yourself, but then there's a lot to be said for that autonomy and, and having control over the, the world you're building. Uh, and then it's then it's more about the, the, um, the trust you have with the editorial team. And, uh, you know, I had a great, team on on uh, the brave and the bold um and they kind of particularly jessica chen she really she really sort of stepped in as my partner on that book and was very involved in feeding back and asking questions and you know championing it really she, she made it a real joy that was good cool. so kind of going off what brad just asked um you know, you've worked on both the writing and the artistic end of comics. Um, would you say after, you know, all the years you've had experiencing sort of both sides, is there any kind of advice you would give to, say, a writer just starting out who's looking to work with their first artist? Um, you know, some kind of pointers of things really not to do or something that they absolutely should do? There's so many angles to it. I think... I think the thing is being mindful that you're not going to get the vision that's in your head. And I think that's uh, starting out. Some people have a, a strong idea of, of the visuals and then you, you, you quickly sort of learn, especially if someone else is drawing it, that they're, what they're reading is going to be wildly different from what you had in your head. Um, and that's all right. That's why it's a collaboration uh, and, the, and the better the, the more quickly you can sort of sit back and not try to micromanage, um, the better, really. Artists, um, again, this is, it, it sometimes depends on the artist you're working with. Some artists love like an Alan Moore style script, which will tell you the time on the clock, which is on the mantelpiece, which is of a certain period that's Georgian that may, and the flock wallpaper will be of this design by William Morris. Um, and you, you literally get in every single prompt um, for each scene. Some people like that because it means they can just get on with the drawing and all they've got to do then is block in the positions and put in where the characters are going to be standing and how, how the dialogue is going to flow between the characters. Um, a lot of others, me included, would rather have less. 
I, I, I much rather have a suggestion of what's happening, almost like the classic Stanley Marvel uh, style approach, almost a plot, which is what I, I got largely from uh, from Grant. It's very sort of, he will go very, very heavily setting the scene right at the beginning of the issue so that I know the vibe he's after. But then after that, he just leaves it very much up to me. And it's a matter of trust after that. So he'll tell me what's happening on each page. But then if I want to lose panels or add panels, he, he's completely cool with that. Um, that's something else writers should be aware of. They have to let a good art, you know, if, if they're working with somebody who they trust, then they should understand that the person who's drawing it, their, their skill and their training is around a visual medium. Uh, and if they know their stuff, then they're going to draw it in the best way uh, that, that works for them and the story. I mean, always the story should be first. Uh, so it is a matter of trust. Um, and like I say, I, lo I like it when I've got room to, to, um, I don't know, to, to, to really dig deep. This, uh, Bill Sienkiewicz said something the other day on a panel we were on, and he was saying he likes to, on every page, he likes to up it. He likes to add more. And I definitely do the same. And he's like the far extreme where he'll get a script that's meant to be eight pages and turn it into 25 pages. Uh, no, nobody's going to stop him because he's Bill. And he will also <laughs> just add so many more things. And for him, he sees it as the script is, uh, it's much more like a, a jazz kind of a carry on. And uh, oh, the cat's just come in the garden with something dead in its mouth. <laughs> oh, God, I know music. that feeling oh, very sorry. well. Got a big yeah. lizard in its mouth, which is like, <laughs> thank you very much, Quince. Very distracting. No, <laughs> can't get that everywhere, folks. Come on now, this is you know. <laughs> He's bringing it to me. It's like it's a crocodile lizard. Oh, let, can you? Yeah, all right. It's gone. <laughs> right, I've just. I think I might have saved it. Well, let's see how it, see how it gets on. Um. <laughs> So, yeah, so, so bit, going back to Bill, he sees it as like jazz, almost like um, when he gets a script, he likes to just totally run with it and see what it inspires in his head and, and just let it evolve. And again, if you're working with Bill Sienkiewicz, the best thing to do is get out, of your, get out of his way, let him do it. And then when he's finished, see, um, see what piece of genius you've got to work with, be very glad of it and write something beautiful that, that you know, matches it because it will have come from the kernel of your idea. Uh, obviously, that is, he's an exception. So there are so many sort of permutations around how that works. Uh, and it's, I think as well, you know, that, that's part of the setup. That's when you go in as a team, when the editor's putting the team together, all of that needs sort of to be established up front. Um, there's nothing that's going to kill an artist's enjoyment on a book and, and make him just die, make the art die, make his spirit die, make or her spirit die, you know, um, quicker than someone micromanaging it. Um, I heard in the past of editors saying, can you know, looking through the whole issue and going, I want this panel, move the camera angle by 35 degrees. So we see this side of the room. And, you know, to do that is a complete redraw. Wow. It, it, hardly anyone does that anymore. It's old school. But, um, and hardly anyone ever did, but that level of micromanaging 
can come from writers and it can come from editors and it's it's really not advised because the artist then just feels like what am i you know i'm just like I, i'm some sort of stand in for a camera at that point and i i don't get to express myself and i don't get to ha you know I, all i'm doing is running the numbers and not being allowed to put any of myself on the paper and it's really important to put to be able to do that so, so that's my long-winded answer to that that question. Okay, thank you. You're very welcome. Did I miss anything? Nope. <laughs> I, pro nope. I probably did. <laughs> and how's the alligator alive? Yeah, he's under a wicker table, which is too low <laughs> for the cat to get to. So the cat is stalking it. <laughs> okay. My wife's just got. There's a lizard under there. <laughs> <laughs> I know he just came over the fence with it in his mouth dangling quite a big one yeah yes very exciting this is an extremely exciting like, this is like a native program podcast now we the audience is going to be really concerned about this alligator lizard <laughs> as I'm everything. <laughs> it's not only that the west <laughs> right not only that, but if I mention this to nieces, nephews, or even my wife, this is the only part they're going to ask about. Like, well, what happened with the lizard? Is everything okay? And I'm like, I had a great conversation with a lot of great people. There's amazing questions, and you want to know what? about the Okay. Thanks, guys. Um, so glad to have brought this moment to you. And Well, it... I can now tell you that the cat has been removed and is now inside the house. So there's hope. I, I have faith that the lizard can make a, a, a successful getaway at this stage. That's an impressive also example of play-by-play. -play. You have a future potentially with the voice and that example right there. Just, you know, down the road, if you ever want to do some commentary broadcasting, that, 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 was, that was nice, man. I mean. <laughs> animal planet. <laughs> right. The oh, we're all animal nuts in our house. So, yeah. We, we like it when we get the possums and the skunks and the, and the raccoons in the back here. It's like they're, they're kind of we, we used to have a one eyed raccoon that used to come in quite a lot. That was obviously called Nick. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> um, Kendra, were you up next? Um, I actually had a question about one of your writings. Um, I see that it's not going to be out until fall of 2021. Um, uh -huh. Okay, Aurora, and it's it's listed as being Frozen meets Witcher, which uh -huh. has already caught my attention. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit more about this young adult, not the one that you're writing? Well, I had a, I wrote a book called God Killers. Um, it was Machiavarius Point and other stories. So it was a, a, a kind of a short novel and some short stories that were all set in the same universe. And it did well. I published it uh, in our old publishing company. It wasn't the first thing we did. I, had, I, I wanted us to be fairly established. This was Mamtor Publishing uh, before I put it out. So it didn't seem too much like a vanity pro project. But it went out through borders in England and it went to a second printing. And it, it got some really lovely reviews. Um, but it never, it didn't get picked up in America, sadly. Uh, and you you can still get it on Amazon. There's some listed of ridiculous prices, but you can still get that one on Amazon. And I wrote Caged Aurora as a sort of sequel. It's not, it features some of the same characters, but it, it's really not, they, they, they're just incidental. So it's really set in, in the same world, but, um, but it, it's about two sisters 
in this empire and one of them is stolen from they're, they're both orphan, orphaned and are being raised by this uh, this priest of this priesthood up in the uh uh Ipopalarian mountains in, in the uh, in this empire and slaves come in and steal one of them and burn the town and and the, the younger one then goes out after to to try and find her sister and that's really the the setup um and it, it crosses the desert and it's got lots of it's got magical elements and it's got monsters and it's got all that kind of stuff uh, but i also wanted to write something the first one's quite i'd been reading like china mieville and m john harrison and uh china china's become a good friend actually he he wrote a, a lovely afterward for my second novella paradise rex press which grant really loved so that's a totally weird different book but um after doing the first one those those books i was reading at the time were really quite dark and and then i have got a lot of nieces and i've got a daughter and i wanted to write something that was more um you know just just not as dark basically not, not as brutal and not as male i think the other one was really quite male and it, even though it was 2008 it was had that kind of game of thrones you never knew who was going to live and who was going to die and uh uh, and so I wanted to tap in a little bit to to my you know the, my female side, if that's possible, and um, and write something about younger these two younger sisters. Uh, so that's the that's the basics of it. Um, and I probably wouldn't want to say too much more than that. But I'm really excited that uh, Roots Publishing um, picked it up. We we I've been looking for. Uh, Actually, it was funny. They're the first people I approached. We were in Portland and they were right opposite and they, their table was slammed the whole time. And my wife just said, go and talk to them. And uh, I, so I, I wandered over sort of sheepishly because I'm, I'm terrible at selling myself. Absolutely bloody awful. I'm, I'm so bad at it. Um, but, you know, thankfully, I've been sitting opposite them all weekend with big Wonder Woman banner and it's it's young age group and it's just specifically sort of slanted towards um uh, female readers as well although the story is very much a story that can be read by guys and girls and uh, uh, you know anyone really um so i just sort of sheepishly went over and introduced myself and she said well send me the document that the, the manuscript and i did and she uh and she really liked it so you know it was um it was kind of a, a, a done and dusted right off the bat i was lucky and very happy and uh, i can't wait for it to come out very cool yeah i'll definitely be keeping an eye out for it thank you well i hope you enjoy it, it i might be able to send you a sneaky uh, preview copy like if you're curious yeah <laughs> yeah yeah definitely <laughs> i will send the information because i will devour it i promise you well i'm in the process of editing it i'm, I'm expanding on some of the uh the world building because um, it was quite short and it, it could stand being quite a bit longer so at the moment it's only 45,000 words and I'd probably like to get it up to you know 90 to 100,000 really some of those young fantasy novels they're up to like 160,000 but that's all those those specs that people talk about which <laughs> are apparently important <laughs> yeah well yeah I'm looking forward to uh Looking forward to that very much. We're yeah, forward to reading it. <laughs> and what a generous, you know, first glance sneak peek. That's very kind <laughs> of you. Yeah. 
Steve, I imagine you're uh, you're biting at the uh, the bit for your first question. Absolutely. Um, Liam, obviously, not only do we have the fact that we're both Brits in common, but we're uh-huh. virtual contemporaries. There's only a two-year age gap between us. So, obviously, for the rest of the team here, growing up in the UK, um, being a comics fan is a radically different experience to growing up in the US, particularly in the 70s and the 80s. So, obviously, I grew up with the black and white British anthologies. Yeah. And then 2008, I didn't see my first American comic till I was about 10. So what was your first like comic book uh, memory? What what brought you into it? And what's the, the thing that hooked you to the industry? I think it's the same. I mean, I grew up exactly the same, like you say, contemporaneous. So I was in Derby and I was a working class lad. I lived in uh, Alastry, which is a sort of suburb of Derby. Um, and I was a little... Uh, I, I mean, I moved around a lot, but this was the age I really sort of got into reading comics. The first one I remember actually was when we ran a hardware store in uh, in Mackworth. My parents did, and and uh, and I think it was my uncle must must have come come to stay. He was in the navy, and I, I think he left a few behind. And there was like a Mad magazine, and also a Daredevil with a Stilt Man that was a Gene Colan story. Um, I've looked at it since I looked it up and it's like 67 so it was before I was born so he must have had it um, on his travels for a while but that that was that was really sort of that's the first one I think I saw as far as I can track it and then uh, later on when we lived in Alastry there was the there was you know every little town had those corner shops with the it wasn't so much a spin rack like they have over here, but it was like a, just a, a row of comics always down the bottom. Under all Absolutely. The Every news agent had those. That's right. So you had papers at the bottom and then the comics and then all the magazines above that. And you could never get two comics in a row, not from the American ones, because they just came in sort of randomly. So you could you'd get like <laughs> yeah. issue three, right? You never knew what happened before or what came afterwards. It didn't matter. You still got them. And the only way that you could get them that there was in order was to get those uh, UK reprints, the black and white ones. Uh, yes. So you, you get Rampage Weekly, or you get... I, I, I used to get Star Wars uh, comics, which was... So actually turned out it was Paul Neary, so who was like the editor yeah. of that. Because um, I, I later went and worked with Paul on the Death Said period. So he was like the editor-in-chief at Marvel UK by then. But at that time, he was in editorial, and he was picking up... He was picking those amazing... Um, stories that are in the back of the, the black so the, the the star wars book for the american people on here the star wars comic was fantastic because it had the main star wars story at the beginning drawn by all the legend the stuff that was coming out in the, in the monthly over here uh, and in the back it had these great backup stories so it would be it would be kill raven and it would be star lord which is that fantastic star lord that was classic by british John, stuff oh my god John Byrne and, uh, you know, the, the one he did with Claremont was just beautiful. And then there would be little horror stories done by Gene Colan and by all sorts of Grey Morrow and all sorts of, like, <laughs> unknown people from the mainstream. And it gave me a real... Well, for a start, what it is is, like, you grow up seeing comics in your head as being black and white. And I still draw as if as if I'm drawing a black and white comic, really. Um and and also because you're getting all of these backup stories, you kind of get a lovely exposure to 
to a real wide range of things. I used to love the um, Adam Warlock as well, Jim Starlin that was in the back of there. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm. Yeah. So that was it. And, uh, and then 2000 AD, which was seminal, you know, it landed. I don't know wh- how and why it was marketed, how, how they did it. But it seemed like there was no 2000 AD and then suddenly it was everywhere and everyone had it. And it was the coolest thing that had just appeared in the universe and was just suddenly in everyone's house, you know, um, in a very short time. It, it was it was absolutely sort of required reading. Um, and, and again, most of that was black and white as well. You know, so uh, how many people from that mag of those times ended up working in America? Brian Bolland and, and uh, Dave Ron, Gibbons. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Ron Morrison. Absolutely. And of course, yourself. <laughs> it was that and that one too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. back to your Judge Dredd and your PJ Maybe stories, which were absolutely brilliant. I mean, so how did you feel when you actually got to draw for 2000 AD after being a reader, after being a fan? <laughs> Do you know, the weird thing, so when I was drawing, I've had a couple of moments in my life that blew my mind. Uh, in huge and unexpected ways and two of them were down to 2000 AD because by the time I was working for it it had a huge I mean you're bearing in mind the size of England is smaller than California the size of Britain um, it it had a huge readership of 120,000 a week at that time you put that in context of comics now that's a massive amount um and so when I was doing, I, you're not even aware of it when you're doing it because there was no internet, like nobody had mobile phones and Twitter and Facebook or anything like that. So you did the, you did the stories and you sent them out and they, you might see a letter in, in the back that references it. And, and obviously they either put stuff in that they, someone that loved it or someone who hated it. So you didn't really get a, a sense of how it was really being received. And I think it was the 88... 1988 UK UK Comic Art Convention um, that Frank Plowright, who used to run that, he used to have a introductory ceremony right at the beginning. So you'd go up on the the stage because it was sort of held in a university building, and they had the uh, they had a, like the film room where with a stage, and they had all night sh- film shows. It was a great con actually. Um, and it was a great show for me that year because I met tons of my heroes and then had this experience of about to tell you. Uh, um, I walked on the stage. We'd all been in the green room. For a start, everyone was really excited because Karen Berger was coming over from DC and Vertigo and everyone was very excited about that. Um, but then we all queued up to go on the stage and I went out and Frank said, I'm sorry, I don't know who you are. And I said, oh, I was, I'm Liam Shop. I'm doing PJ maybe in... Uh, Judge Dredd story 2000 AD kind of sheepishly and then he introduced me and I got this standing evasion the entire room stood on its feet and cheered and I was like what the hell is this happening right now (laughs) it turned out that PJ maybe had really struck this massive chord that I had no idea about not prepared at all and I, I don't know if it was the same weekend or like really shortly afterwards but my mom had come to London. I'd moved to London. Oh, God, I was still only like 19. Um, uh, my mom had come down for the weekend to, to stay and see how I was doing and everything. We went shopping. I went to HMV on, in Oxford Street. And I was with her. And I was with another friend of mine, a girl called Lisa from, from Whaley Bridge up in Derbyshire. She'd come to see us. 
and we went uh, we went to HMV. I can't remember what the hell I bought. I don't know, probably some Led Zeppelin album or something, or uh, Talking Heads or something. Um, nice. Uh, and I went and queued up to buy this record and put my handed over my card and the girl behind the counter said Liam Sharp I was like yeah she's not Liam Sharp of 2000 AD fame <laughs> my legs just totally <laughs> buckled <laughs> and I sort of landed on one elbow onto the desk and said why yes that's uh, me yes. <laughs> a quick recovery really is I think my mum's still telling that story yeah you know but it is funny how you can go from zero perception, from nothing, from being, having knowing, having no sense of anyone having the faintest idea how you, who you are, to, to having a moment like that. And it, it, it floors you, really. It's, uh, you know, quite an experience. Brilliant. Thanks, Liam. <laughs> Seth, what did you want to ask? You know, I, I wanted to follow up on something that you uh, you mentioned about your you know your first exposure to comics. It was in a hardware store, and that would be a great introduction for me to sort of understand your timeline as far as drawing. Had you been drawing um, before your first exposure to comics, or was it something that came after that? And maybe uh, had? yeah, I've got one of those stories. Which is, <laughs> which, um, Perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, I was. Um, so, yes, I was a working class kid in a in a very working class rural. T- Derby's famous for for building airplane engines, Rolls Royce airplane engines and trains, and it was really sort of the heartland of the industrial revolution uh, revolution in 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 Britain. Um, so they had the first silk mill there and things like that. It's a very very um, industrial town. And I like, uh, we always refer to it jokingly, it's, it literally is a town without an ego. It's a great town. Before I moved here, I, I'd lived there again for 10 years. My kids went to school there. I love Derby. I'm, I'm very, uh, and, and it's become a, a, a really sort of vibrant, great city. It's just a great city. But as a young kid, it was a very different city. Uh, and people there are very like, oh, what do, you, what, what do you want to stay here for? What do you come back here for? It's rubbish. <laughs> it's like, that's the, it's got no ego. <laughs> like, um, and uh, so I was at a lovely school again in Alistair that's where we lived at the time Alistair Lawns and my teachers over three years were just I drew comics all the time um, but they were really like this kid needs to do something with his art and they pushed my they talked to my parents and they said look there's this thing they, I, I think the teacher had said there was some connection there's this thing called the Gifted Children's Society, which is a horribly pretentious name. Um, but but it, there it was. And um, they said, all right, well, well, we'll take him to it and see what they say. So I was 11 when I went there. And the chap who was running it happened to have been a former headmaster of this school in Eastbourne, Meads, St. Andrews, um, which is a sort of preparatory posh school. And they had had a new, they were going to be getting a new art school built. And um, they'd never had, I mean, this is crazy. This is how things are changing. At that time, in all of these schools, they had scholarships for music, scholarships for maths and Latin and all of the, you know, the, well, pretty much everything. But they didn't have scholarships for art, weirdly, weirdly. 
um, and he and he he kind of saw this as an opportunity to pioneer um, scholarships for artists. So he got hold of his old school and said, "Look at this kid." And so we ended up suddenly we're driving down to Eastbourne. My parents like parked their car four blocks away from the school so no one would see it in their fancy cars. <laughs> the doors were hanging off and different colours. And um, uh, and. Uh, which, and I don't want to do my parents down there incredible and they've achieved amazing things in the, in my lifetime. Um, but, but, you know, and, and bless them for doing this too. But they, so they drove me down and it was basically like going to Hogwarts and the art teachers sort of took me apart and took me into a room for a couple of hours and said, draw this. And they put, put things in front of me and just draw it. And that's because they turned out, they just didn't, <laughs> they didn't believe I'd done it. So, so they wanted to see that I could actually do it in front of them. Um, <laughs> Prove it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I ended up winning this scholarship to uh, to this prep school, which which was the you know historic one because it was the first of its kind, which is a kind of a lovely legacy all by itself. And then I won another one on to Eastbourne College, which is the next one after that, and went through up to A level. But at A level, I didn't go to university or college. I went straight to work with one of my heroes, Don Lawrence, uh, who used to do the Trigon wow. Empire in uh, Look and Learn magazine. And that's a whole other story. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I appreciate that one. And I, I love the, the humble beginnings. You know, um, we had quite a few of these. My dad somehow held them together with like bailing wire and right. all sorts <laughs> of magic. I yeah. mean, and when I say the name out here, it's like a Datsun 210 station wagon, which was like <laughs> a silver bullet that was basically made, I think, of recycled Pepsi cans. It felt that light. And just, you know, we we, we love that. I ended up driving it. it was That's iconic, the- that thing, though, isn't it? <laughs> it is. I mean, yeah. there was some kid at, at, near the end of its life after it had like 400,000 miles. He was like, I want to buy it and turn it into a rally car. And my dad's looking at him like, I don't understand you. I can't. <laughs> We can't communicate right now. It's just not. A- <laughs> we had the uh, we had the English equivalent at one point, and it was a comma van, and it had, these things had the, the oh, covered wow. wheels that just came out the bottom, and it hadn't got any seats in the back, so it had a wooden com- a wooden commode. Dad <laughs> 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 strapped in there in the, in the tougher times, but uh, he, he's. He, God, I could do a whole podcast just on my dad because he's one of the most extraordinary people. Um, he just always got up and did amazing things. So, you know, I, I, I might have to take you up to... on that one, Liam. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'd all be up for that one. That would be a great conversation. Um, yeah, I had one of those dads who he would work eight hours, call you cause he got a four hour overtime, tell you what to set up for dinner, come home, do some laundry, do some, uh, gardening. And you're just looking at him the whole time. Like, when do you sleep? When do you, exactly. when do you stop, man? Like, <laughs> There was a time, I'll, I'll tell you one story just as a, as an example, because it's one of the better ones. When we, and this is from a situation of having literally no money at all and, and, and us needing a house because the, the, it was the 70s, the, the, the hardware shop had gone bankrupt. There was a three-day week, a work week, which just crippled the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was like, okay, well, what do I do? How do I get some money? And they were tearing down, I don't think they ever had them over here, but gasometers in England were quite a, a common thing that you'd see on the skylines. They were Victorian and they were enormous steel barrels um, made out of like six mil steel 
Wow. Right. Um, and they were just barrels and they would they would be sort of concertina. So they would they would rise up and down depending on how much gas was in them. And they started tearing all of these down in the 70s. Um, and my dad saw one of them and he just said, I could do something with that steel. And he loved the narrowboats and the canals. He ended up doing an awful lot on the canals. And he went over and talked to them and asked if he could buy some of the steel. And I said, well, how much do you want? And he got a chalk, bit of chalk, just drew it on the side of the steel. And they said, fair enough. They cut it. And he, he got a friend called Gavin who had a, a space, a, a, basically a bit, bit of mill space. And they dropped it off there. And he... And this is what's amazing, because I often think, like, if they made a show about something like this now, like, Michael builds a boat. My dad's, Roger. <laughs> My dad's Roger, so let's say, Roger builds a boat. Right. Um, it would be, okay, how did you do it, Roger? Well, I got this team, and I got these, I got the plans from here, and then I hired these guys to do the welding, and then I got this guy to source the engine. He did all of it. He, he made the plans. He welded it. He got, he's found the engine. He, I mean, all done traditionally from like i mean just amazing he, he he did all the woodwork he painted it got it on the canal sold it it's a bit still running now in fact it, it was it headed the ashton rally not that long ago because wow. it's technically the oldest uh, narrowboat on the canal it's because the steel's 200 years old um that's a great crazy. story <laughs> and and, um, and he the sold it and the at eat your heart yeah. out right <laughs> But that's, that, that to me is like amazing because from the money for that, he got a deposit for a house wow. and we, we ended up with a house, which is, you know, and, and again, it's like you say, that whole thing of working. So he'd, he'd be working full time and then he'd be doing that at the weekends full time and every evening too, you know, because it was, he had a time frame. So, yeah. Right. So, yeah, a little, <laughs> a little digress, a little digression. Ah, but a great story, man. That's the best part of a conversation like this. The stories you get out where you think to yourself, would I have anticipated that? No. <laughs> Am I so thrilled that I got that? Ah, that's going to be something I'm going to be telling to other people for a long time. Um, you know, I realized in my excitement, we jumped right into the fact that we were talking with Liam Sharp. And I told you this was the DC Comics News podcast, but I gave nothing else. So if you're a first timer just checking in, I, I should probably do some basic little introduction stuff. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. I'm here today with Brad Felicki, Kelly Gaines, Kendra Hale, and Mr. Steve J. Ray. We're talking with Liam Sharp, legendary artist, currently doing amazing things with DC Comics, Green Lantern, Grant Morrison. And as I promised at the beginning of this, no flowery speeches, but I wanted to make sure you knew who you were listening to. And with that and an amazing set of stories from Liam, just on some follow-up questions, I have to turn around and say, Brad, what's your next question, my friend? Uh, I'm curious if you listen to music while you do your art, and if so, what do you listen to, and is it dictated by the project you're working on? How does that how does that work? All the time, I think almost every comic person I know is like, because because basically we're sitting on our own with the with the paper in front of us, you know, everyone I know is a full time listener to to music. Um, I I will I'll do the work i work out the rough pencils without the music on but as soon as that's done and then it's into the craft of it and finishing the page the music goes on and i'm pretty much open to anything i'm 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 definitely a, a, a child of midland working class sensibilities in that i grew up with classic rock and folk and and uh you know and 
progressive rock to a large extent too. And I will always sort of default back to that at some point or other. It will go round and round, but it always comes back to that. But but I, I, I really just love the whole spectrum. Yes to different music for different things. You know, obviously if you're doing something metal, then that's when the Iron Maiden's going on. <laughs> you know, Deep Purple. I was in a Deep Purple cover band actually for a year and a half for, for a while That's awesome. down in, in Sussex <laughs> 20 years ago, I, which was like the best thing. It was like the best antidote for quite a stressful time. Um, and I, 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 I uh, yeah, that was that was that was great. But um, yeah, it, it's it, it consumes you really. And I, I know a lot of people have issues with digital I really don't because I, I haven't got the time to to go and look through bins my son does that they're all all him and his mates he's 16 and he's obsessed with vinyl and he's getting this amazing collection of like classic stuff just man fantastic and he just loves his vinyl so I'm really it's amazing but I love the fact that I can get uh, I like the rabbit hole of digital so if you play something you like you can investigate and find something else and something else and something else and constantly be trying new things and and uh you know I've got I've got I'm working my way through that list of a thousand records you should listen to I don't know if you've come across that it's like a, it's a website all you have to do is put that in in your lifetime thousand records you should listen to and I think I'm at the top one percent i think i've done 750 of them so far oh nice so i'm not not doing too badly <laughs> so yeah i like my music <laughs> yeah. i play guitar cool. badly <laughs> good enough to be in a deep purple cover band oh no i only had to sing in that one so that's <laughs> oh nice <laughs> <laughs> awesome i'm gonna go ahead and uh, check in with kelly next uh, first one's out of the way what's your next question so what would you say the most fun part of the comic creation process is for you? Is it more of the brainstorming and kind of pulling together ideas? Or are you, you know, more of someone who likes to look at the finished product and say, all right, it's, you know, it's done. This is what I did. This is fantastic. That is a really good question. Um, and really hard to answer, actually. I <laughs> know that it, it, I don't know how, 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 it, how much it sits still. You know, like, um, I think people every day you, you're gonna. It, it's like you might. Music is a good example. Referring back to music, certain days you will like a certain kind of music. You might you want to have a mellow music, or you might want a really challenging day of music, or you might want a, a really just mental Ramstein day of music or something. You know, it could be. It could, it could be any. It could be anything depending on how you're feeling and so as a result I think the same sort of thing applies some days I really love getting into the inking for instance you know and, and I'll just go in a total zen space absorbing the music almost think you know that's where your real thinking time is I, I think because when you're inking it, it's uh, it's not that it's mechanical there's a lot of thought process that goes into it but it's also a lot of um, learned craft you know it's it, it's something that you get better and better at only by doing it again and again and again um, but it, it's also you know it's it's the element which is akin to watching paint dry so it's uh, it 
it's not always the most exciting bit but sometimes it is that's the funny thing so sometimes it, you really really get a kick out of laying out the pencils and you by the time you get to the ink that was all really high energy and you're just like ah, i don't really i want to i'm going to pencil off another page because i'm not really feeling like my hand's not as uh, so hard to explain but some days i get sloppy with the inks and i know i'm just losing it a little bit and it's just like ah like i've, I've lost that edge it's best for me to stop inking this because I, I won't do i won't do it justice but there's an energy in that that you can transfer to to penciling but the, i mean really the fun there's obviously i say obviously i think i think it's sort of across the board and it's kind of a shame in a way there's nothing like the first few weeks of getting into a new project um uh, working off ideas for stories you know whether 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 that's as an artist or or if you're doing the whole thing or if, even if you're just writing the script it, it's so exciting have you know putting something having put something to bed and know that you've done a body of work and that's all behind you and you've got this sort of fresh start there's something wonderfully energizing about getting onto something new um and 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 also allowing yourself to to just world build and come up with the characters and imagine the scenarios and imagine the the sort of main crux of what this story is going to be and how it's going to work and 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 i love that time because sometimes you know you'll have you wake up in the morning and, and a really clear new idea will will come to you or you'll you know you'll be having a shower and you'll get a, a flash of inspiration and and in a way you need it's nice to have a good little bit of you know a good running for something new because you want to allow those things to come in in that time rather than halfway through the process of drawing it when it's already too late so um you can't beat that it's magical it's funny when you finish a book because this i think this is one of the <laughs> i've talked about this online before like if you were in a if you were in a west end production there's always a rap party or if you're on a play uh, making a movie there's a rap party there's when you finish production there's a celebration and you you sort of you know celebrate that the weird thing about comics is you finish the last issue but it's not going to be out for three more months uh, and by the time it's out you've already started the next thing so you never really get a proper sort of send-off or anything unless you sort of conjure it for yourself which i've actually done just to do that because i think i think they they should be sort of enjoyed we tend to get really excited with and celebrate the beginning of somebody else starting on a new book you know right. uh, and, yeah. and the industry does too it's like oh so and so's doing this book and it's and, it, and people get excited about it everyone's talking about it everything's like it, this is really cool uh, you never there's no like kind of you don't see it the other the other end <laughs> Uh, I'm making any sense. But, no. Oh, no, that actually made perfect sense. Yeah, I, so so I try to I try to be mindful of that and enjoy the enjoy the getting of the job, but also enjoy the putting it to bed. If it's you know, assuming it's gone well, and if it hasn't gone well, it's like right. well, good riddance, and that's worth celebrating. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, Kendra, do you have a next question? Um, I have faith. 
I guess mine would be when, when given, I mean, I'm just looking at everything that you've done and absolutely bravo because there's so many amazing pieces that you've done over the years. Which one came, like, which story came the easiest to you to create the characters off of the written word? And which one kind of took you a little bit longer to be like, okay, this is how I want it to go? That's a good, they're all really good questions. It, it's funny because I think the, um, I think in the past I slightly shot myself in the foot sometimes because I've always switched sort of direction and, and tone and style issue to, you know, job to job really, because that's implied by the story for me. And I think people had a bit of a job early on following my style, you know, and I think that was probably tough for editors too, because it's like, which, which Liam are we going to get here? Um, and I, there's a point, hopefully, that you're just sort of good enough to get uh, over all of the uh, the different sort of those different elements that you've pulled them together enough to be recognisably you, even if you're pushing the envelope slightly. I, I think I was also just pushing myself too hard when I was young. I was trying to um, I was trying to I was trying to be relevant, and I was trying to often mim- mimic and imitate other artists when I was younger. That I because I didn't have very much confidence in my ability. I, I, it's one of those weird things that comes with a lot of artists. I think it's usual. Um, so I, I would always feel like I was in the shadow of other people and trying to, you know, which I would advise no one to do. Um, but I would try and imitate other people and capture a bit of what they had. Um, so I have completely derailed myself from... From your question, <laughs> uh, remind okay. me again what it was. It was about what, sorry? All right. So um, when it comes to everything that you've done, who, which oh, character yes. was easiest and which one did you find harder to kind of phone in on? Yeah, I, I can see why I got myself in the muddle on that one. Um, <laughs> I probably probably the, the one that really was just... I was ready for, and it was the right time, and everything came together really beautifully. I think it was the Brave and the Bold. Um, I'd come Fantastic. off the back of Wonder Woman. Um, I was not really ready to stop drawing her. For me, that book comes right off the end of my run on Wonder Woman. I tried to make her voice the one that Greg had given her, because to me, that was Wonder Woman. You know, I, I couldn't imagine her talking in any, any other way. So I felt like I knew her. Um, it was similar when I wrote Death Said Gold, actually, because Dan Abner had been writing the regular series. But when I wrote Death Said Gold, I tried to imagine Dan's writing style for his voice because I just felt like I really knew Death Said. So in the same thing with Happened with the Brave and Bold, I just felt like I really knew Diana. It, I didn't even have to think about it. She, she just spoke. You know, she just you kind of channel it at that point. Um, but also this story. I love mythology. Um and my father-in-law, Danny, who the book's actually dedicated to, Danny McCormack, he, uh, he and I, he, he, he died the year I did that, but he and I used to spend forever talking about the Irish mythology and the Tuatha de Danon and talking about Jim Fitzpatrick's books, uh, uh, the, the Silver Arm, which is, uh, is uh, you know, Jim, bless him, wrote me a lovely introduction for the hardback too, and he's like a legend. 
Um, he did these fantastic illustrated books, as well as the really famous Che Guevara picture that everybody knows, and uh, the Thin Lizzy albums from the 70s album covers. Um, so, but so he was a big inspiration. And so when I did that book, it was like it was all of these things coming together. It was my love of uh, Irish mythology. It was my love of that specific kind of um, fantasy type drawing. It was putting Diana in a uh, more of a fantastical world, which is something that really appealed to me. Um, and it also just seemed like uh, so obvious that Gotham would have an Irish quarter and there'd be ley lines and there would be a way into Tiernanog in in uh, in Gotham. You know, so it, it really kind of wrote itself after I'd come up with the premise. And the premise was an old premise. I'd actually pitched it. <laughs> it's funny. I'm just thinking of thinking um, back how, how things come around. I'd pitched it a few years earlier. The same idea is like, how do I do a Brave and the Bold maybe with Batman and the Green Lantern? The idea was that Green Lantern wasn't a detective. He was a cop and he needed a, de a detective and a very powerful being, being had been killed on a planet. And so he gets Batman to an alien planet. And essentially that was the pitch. It didn't go anywhere. But it was still a good enough idea that I could take that idea and use it uh, for this story. You know, it's like, OK, so what if, what if a god's been murdered? And then from that point, it was like, what is, is he murdered? Um, Diana's not a detective. She needs Bruce. It's really important. And I loved the idea, too, that Bruce, there's a whole bunch of things I really enjoyed about that. You know, these, these guys are fairies and everybody thinks fairies are tiny. But actually, the fairies used to be giants and they were gods. And it's, it's actually the fact that when the Christians went to Ireland, they kind of said, oh, you don't want to believe in the old gods. And they diminished them by telling stories about them. And this is sort of historical. They, they said, oh, yeah, they just became really, really small and went under all the wraths and into the fairy circles and disappeared underground and became tiny as they became sort of forgotten by by time and by people. And, uh, you know, just disappeared into the, their magical realm of Tinnerog. Um and I love the idea that when you actually get there, no, they're all still giants. Nobody got tiny. They were, <laughs> they're massive, you know. And there's nothing. Batman there, he doesn't. He's, he hasn't got. He doesn't stand a chance. So he's just a detective. Uh, and that's not just a detective. That's what he's meant to be. So it was nice to just say this is what he's there for. He's not there to fight anyone. He's not there to to you know to to be a, the biggest bruiser on the block and intimidate. He's there to be a detective. And it doesn't matter if he wears the mask or whatever. It's just, you know, he, he's Batman and the detective. And she's there being what she is, the, the diplomat, the peacemaker, the, the person looking for truth. And that's, that, that, was, that thing just became a joy, really. It just, it was, um, it, it flew by. And it's odd, I sat down and read it cover to cover recently i hadn't done that for a long time and i was curious you know you get a little bit nervous whether you, you think you're going to find something that you like a, a hole that you missed or a, a loophole in the story and it's like ah. Oh. so you, i read it through and it's like god that's actually better than i remembered it <laughs> and i was pretty happy with it at the time so Brilliant. so yeah so that was that that one i would say was was great um but they haven't always been great. 
And that's pretty fair. It's going to happen sometimes, right? You're going to have the amazing and then eh, the not so great. Uh, <laughs> but I love the answer. Um, Steve, how about you, my friend? What's your next question up? It actually leads from that, because obviously on Brave and Bold, you wrote it, penciled and inked it. But obviously, you, you're an all-round artist. You, you do colours and covers, too. So one thing I always like to ask uh, when I speak to creative talents is, um, can you remember the first time your work was sent to you? You got your first uh, promo copy, your, your, your freebie copy, and seeing it finished and holding it in your hands. And do you still get a bit of a thrill from that whenever you receive your comps these days what was that first initial one like and how is it like these days as well the first one was 2000 ad that was the first thing i did solo and it was a two-page story uh um can't remember the oh the web i think might might have been called it was a, a future shock um and it was it was this guy in his just being horrible to one of his tenants he was like in a web and he electrocutes himself at the end and it's got a happy ending but it was it was all right I did it at Don's place I, I, I would been Don's assistant for a year and I was basically learning how to draw a storm to take over from him because he was wanting to stop and um, then he kind of realized he wasn't quite ready to stop and I kind of realized I didn't want to just be a clone of Don which was which was great it was mutual for both for both of us that was like mutually fine so he then really helped me um, work on my inks, get a portfolio together, and he got, gave me the contact details for 2000 AD. And I went to London, I showed him my stuff. And I actually, before I did that, I did a couple of pinups. I did a Johnny Alpha pinup, and I did, a, I think the very, very first one was a pinup of Judge Dredd, and it was Mr. Justice Dredd, and he had the wig over the top of his helmet. Oh, was, I remember that one. Yeah, that was. My, I think that's my very first solo published piece. And he was banging the butt of his gun as the as the hammer. And uh, yeah, I think that was it. That was the first one. And I, of course, I was absolutely delighted. And then the two pager, and then I got a one seven page story. Um, <laughs> weirdly, it was it was pre it was pre uh, PJ maybe, but it was also about a kid. Uh, whose parents get in trouble for spanking him. And I think Judge Dredd spanks him at the end of something because he's a, he's a little shit. <laughs> he's not, he does it. Um, so it seems weird. I think I did. I think it's because I did a good job on the kid there that that's why they gave me the PJ Maybe job because that was really right off the back of that that I did the first one, um, which I don't think that first PJ Maybe story was meant to be anything other than a one-off but it just proved really popular and then he just got more and more of a you know a bigger and bigger character so yes i remembered that extremely well um and being very excited about it and then the other the part of that pj maybe run was it's funny how you remember things the i there was one three part or three or four part of that i put everything into I, I spent days and days on it i'd really elaborately designed the pages i had pj with his shelves behind him that were, it was almost barry smith type you know shelves full of stuff in the background just to referencing bits from other stories and you know i, I was i just went crazily to town on this and the pages were huge they still are but <laughs> um and 
and I was, I thought this is it. This is going to be the one that puts me on the map. And I went to pick it up, and it was the first issue of Simon Bisley's Slain the Horned God, and mine just vanished oh, in <laughs> obscurity in that issue because that was so groundbreaking. So the weird thing was on that issue, I thought this is the best work I've ever done. This might do quite well. I thought, oh God, no one's even going to notice this. But actually, that led to that standing ovation. So obviously, it was noticed. But uh, it's, it's no, funny. That, PJ that was... maybe and Chopper, um, after Dread himself, were like the two slight supporting characters that that lived on and really stayed on the map. I mean, I, I remember them vividly, and I've got those issues still. So. Well, Brilliant. they were the three. So it was Chopper, PJ, maybe, and uh, Judge Death. They were the most popular yes, villains. Yes, judges. Um, so it's, 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 I mean, like, amazing to have, you know, designed one, co-created one that ended up in that sort of company. It's an astonishing company. So on the other hand, I'm talking about like now when I get them in now, it's funny. Sometimes I see I get them in and I'm slightly disheartened. And I don't know. I don't even know why. Sometimes you need to give things a, a breath. I think it's because they come out so quick. You've been living with them every day and seeing them again and again and again. And the colours come in and you just, you're checking through and you're checking through. And by the time it comes through your door, it doesn't actually feel real. It it, it sort of feels um, it feels like you're still in the production process. I think in, in a way, it's I I, I enjoy looking at them maybe about a month after that when when it's far enough in the background and I've done a few other issues um, and moved on past it and then I can see it with, with uh, clearer eyes. You never see it with um, clear eyes, I don't think. You're kind of you're judging it in the same way as you are while you're drawing it and because no page is ever done and no page is ever good enough um, you, you see it with those eyes if it comes out really soon. Uh, and it's only later when you when you take a breath uh, that you can kind of you can you can be a bit more objective about it. Brilliant, thank you, Liam. Seth, what was your next question, brother? Yeah, uh, that just reminds me of this thing that I would hear being told to writers when they were finishing something and they were curious about what they should do. A lot of times they'd say, "Put it in a drawer. Just just put it in a drawer. Yeah. Come back to it after a little bit of time." But Give yourself that space, you know, to sort of forget things that you were so heavily entrenched in. And then when you do, you can look at it with fresh, uh, I guess, yeah. just fresh eyes. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, you know, that's kind of what I was saying about the creative bit, the early bit when you start a new project. That's why you don't want to to hit the table running. Really, you want you if you have a little bit of space, it gives it gives you room to put it in a drawer for a few days, come back to it again, put it in a drawer come back to it you know mm-hmm. um that i had a funny thing when i was writing god killers i had this weird this and again inspiration when things take you um when you get blocks and and how they resolve themselves it never seems to happen in the same way twice but i remember this very specific point where i just hit a roadblock completely and I and I just thought, oh god, this isn't going to work. There's something missing. And out of nowhere, this character, um, who was a giantess, uh, black-skinned giantess, who was a rare, um, extremely sort of rare in the, within the story that they hardly ever survived because of the they were part 
giant part native of the planet um and they rarely survive but she does and she just popped in my head fully formed i just started typing and ended up writing this whole story of her this whole chapter pretty much and i had no idea where she came from but if she hadn't have come in when she did i couldn't have finished the story she was the total answer and the key to the whole thing <laughs> she, she made sense of everything and I, and I hadn't planned her at all so strange and it, and I, I i loved her too because she she had this I, I was trying to write a fantasy world that felt real where just terrible thing like there's a you i was taking the tropes like they would i had it where the guy was putting the fellowship together and he's testing people out in the in the bar and in the in in the in the city that he's in, Tantrix alumni, and they um, and he gets his group, and they go off to the mountains, and they have one night in the bar in the pub, the last pub before they get up into the mountains, before they get off, off on their quest, and that's all very nice. And as soon as they get in the mountains, they're attacked by a bunch of uh, raiders, and just decimated, <laughs> completely wiped out. And one ends up on one team, another one ends up somewhere else, and you're like. It's just a nightmare, complete failure. Uh, and the, the whole story was kind of like that. So Cherry is raised the giantess. She's sort of raised as, as a, you know, as a, she's dragged around as, as this sort of object of interest. And eventually she gets psoriasis and they just abandon her. You know? And she, so she's left by the side of the road because she's not of value to anyone anymore. And she looks a right mess and she manages to jam her a sword into her hand before her hand sort of crusts around it and, and and then she just becomes a bandit she's just a total badass and i loved her and and this just she just sort of ended up fully formed and it's like and she becomes just amazing she she has a nice end to her story and uh, it's not all she's one of the few I, at the end it, it all works out but um it's pretty grim a lot of this so it is funny those those things about putting, giving yourself a beat yeah, and the solution that you were able to just come up with, not plan, but you had to solve this problem, and she just springs up perfectly, and you realize, like, wow, look what I discovered because of this problem that I had, which has just got to be a great discovery. It's the power. Honestly, I, I have long ago learned never to doubt your subconscious. It's astonishing what it will throw out at you, because it's, it's clear after you know all these years of doing this stuff it's clear that it's working away in the background and um you know often those solutions come completely subconsciously and fully formed and it's so weird and too too common for me not to take you know serious note when it happens and also to give myself space for that to happen because you can agonize trying to come up with the right solution and um you know you can just let your brain do it for you while you're sleeping (laughs) okay well that settles it i had two questions i thought i was going to follow up with and i was debating which it was going to be and you just you just burned through to the one that i'm now like this is the only one i can ask right now um you you point out something really important which was that when you were starting out you were looking around at how you could be relevant and that was actually a really big challenge for your your style and that Probably any young artist, just like anyone else trying to find their voice in a creative medium, is looking for a way to define their style. Yep. If you could go, if you could talk to them, say something to them, if you could go back to your younger self and say, hey, 
this is it. Do this. And don't let the other things be the distraction that makes you want to pull and and sort of want to chase all these other things that might not really be you. But when it comes to your style, what's what's that advice look like? The advice is really simple. It's don't worry about being, uh, you know, relevant or current or trendy or cool or any of those things. Don't worry about um, whether you're, you're hip or. The, the, literally the only thing you should concentrate on is first storytelling that's the biggest thing the storytelling trumps art trumps everything really really great storytelling um you can be quite rudimentary with your drawing and it'll still it'll still work you know mm-hmm. you don't have to be an astonishing draftsman and we've seen plenty of examples of that um but once you've nailed the storytelling and this is something I had the drawing down and I was always tried to rely too much on the drawing and then trying to be cool. You know, I'd see someone like Bisley take off and I'd try and be Bisley. I'd look at Glenn Faber and I think Glenn's just bloody amazing. I'll try and be Glenn. But, but Glenn's also an amazing storyteller and uh, just drawing like him is not enough. You need you need the storytelling. Um, and then you look at someone like Frank Miller and then the, clearly just about the storytelling so the storytelling is he can really draw but he chooses to do this very you know pared down approach to to drawing which which serves the story extremely well and when i saw dark knight for the first time i didn't get it i was with don lawrence i was learning to paint in a very very realistic style and, and with you know meticulous detail and pages that would take two weeks to paint um and then I'd look, I looked at Dark Knight and was like, there's nothing here. There's just a few squiggly lines. I don't get it. And Don's like, you're missing the point. <laughs> Don saw it straight away. He's just saying, look at it. It's just full of wit. And the storytelling is fantastic. He loved Dark Knight. And I, I, I went and I got the, the whole train. I sat down. I read it in one sitting. And just that was it. I never looked back. I fell in love with it. And, and just, you know, I've been trying to um, get close, you know, if I could get even halfway as good as 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 laying out pages and telling the story as well as he does, I'd, I'd be very satisfied. But you could spend a lifetime trying to do that. Um, so storytelling first, and then it's about drawing, but not trying to draw in a cool way. Because the, my other massive hero is Bill Sienkiewicz. If I could draw like Bill, I'd be, <laughs> you know, he, he's just astonishing. I love his freedom. You know, he. He has this line, start with a broom, finish with a needle. Um, That's a great line. Nice. You know, and there's a lot lot in that because it's like, but he can tell a story very well and he does it very, very quickly. I've spent time uh, working with him for, we did a a, a Sherlock Holmes story together for Madefire a few years ago, which was just amazing. Um, But going back to the the storytelling thing, the 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 art is think about just concentrate on learning to draw properly learn about lighting learn about uh composition learn about um really really important perspective because the one thing i i try to tell everybody these days is as a comic strip artist what people don't see is the process behind it all and uh because you're you're doing so many jobs all at once you're you, for a start you're the the um production designer 
So you, you're going to be asked, in a, you, when you get your script, you're going to have no time. You've got to get straight in. You're going to have a deadline. You're probably going to have a month. You've got 22 pages to get through. And when you, you get that script, you don't know what's going to be in it. So the first page could have a horse on it. The next page could have a tank that's the size of a moon that's tra traps in it across like a, you know, a river of lava on, a, <laughs> uh, you know, on an endless plane in a, in a completely impossible universe somewhere. You just don't know. It could be anything. Um, so you had better be prepared for that. You better work bloody hard at your drawing. And, and, and to really be a successful designer in terms of being a concept artist, you need to be able to, you do need to look at reference. You need to have looked at things. If, you, if you've looked at, say, uh, an aircraft carrier, you're going to draw a much more convincing, massive <laughs> spaceship you know then then if you've never looked at one because you're just going to have a, a general idea of you know spaceships that you've seen in films or whatever or in other comics um it's funny i've really changed my opinion on this so i'm digressing a little bit I've ch i, I, I love you keep going <laughs> <laughs> well it, when i was a lot younger i used to say to people don't just learn from looking at comics look at uh classic classic artists look at illustrators and you know and don't just learn from reading comics learn from reading novels but then since then the comics have got so good and the writing is so good and the art is so good that it is the equal of any other art medium it is and you can't question that so actually you can learn now from just looking at comics and that's fair enough you know they're that good um <laughs> Uh, anything else is reductive and it's not fair to my fellow artists you know we, we are we are as good as any other art form so of course you can learn by looking at comics um here here indeed it's funny isn't it how you can sh how you can even as a practitioner you can have a, a weird inverted snobbery without even realizing it it's very strange <laughs> uh, and thank god it's changing but um so, yeah, so thinking about you've got to be the production designer. Then you've also got to be the lighting cameraman. So you've got to be thinking about sh shots, how you're going to light each shot, what the tone is, what the atmosphere is, you know. Is it night? Is it day? Is it some sort of weird hinterland between the two? Is it twilight? How are you going to put across twilight? How are you going to catch something that, where the light's just catching the top of a mountaintop but the rest is plunged in shadows and you've just got stuff looming out of it? How are you going to show a face that's literally in half shadow so you've got to understand those kinds of forms but also why are you putting these shots in this order who's speaking first all of those kinds of things are stuff you're thinking about because it's all forwarding it's all part of the storytelling and now on top of that you've, you've you've got to be the costume designer you're the makeup technician you're the special effects expert um you're all of the actors that's something else nobody thinks about you have to be an actor to be a comic strip artist because you have to embody all of the characters in the story. And so you have to think about what each one is actually doing and thinking. And, you know, in order to be really effective, you need to be thinking about that because otherwise it's just not going to read as authentic. They're just going to be standing around. They're not going to be interacting. They're not going to feel you. And, and the other thing, again, with all of that is when people read it, it it'll seem invisible. And that's how it should be, because real life is going on around you all the time and you don't pay attention to every little detail. But if you choose to, it is going on, you know. Um, 
And this is, goes back to Don Lawrence. One of the lessons he taught me, I drew this, uh, he gave me an old script and it was some couple of characters walking down uh, a corridor. And I drew, basically I drew two characters in a box, an elongated box, hardly any features. And he just came over and laughed. And I said, well, I was sort of crestfallen. I said, well, what? And he said, what's that? I said, well, it's, it's what it says in the script. Two guys walking down a corridor. He said, yeah, but where is the corridor? Is it on the, what is it, on a planet? Is it in a <laughs> tower block? If it's, is it, what's it in a hotel? If it's in a hotel, maybe there's lift doors. Is it like on a, a, a space station? In which case, why is it just a square empty space? You know, is it a, a rundown place? It could be made of meat, you know? What about the other people? It could be made of anything. It could be like on a massive wooden planet. It could be anything. And, he, and, and so from, and that was like one of those early lessons that completely transformed the way I thought about everything. Because it's just like, okay, that, that actually makes it even more exciting. Because then it's like, okay, this is world building. And then you start thinking, okay, this has got, it could be like the in, in, interior from an alien movie or, you know, there, there's so many possibilities there about about just enjoying building the world and creating that environment and making it you know somewhere that feels like you'd like to be there or or not definitely wouldn't <laughs> want to be there you know which is equally fun but um, don't just draw me a rectangular box huh <laughs> right well exactly but people people in people are very literal that's that's the thing you know and and one of the things about comics is you have to in some way learn not to be so literal and look beyond the the words. I think that's why some people work really well with with an Alan Moore script because he will outline all of those uh, special things. He will populate that world so densely that you don't have to think about it. Um, Grant does it to some extent, like he will write three pages with very specific characters. So I'll do all of those characters and then I'll try and add a few more, you know. I always try to up him a little bit, going back to that Bill Sienkiewicz line about upping the page, you know. Um, so I always try to add a little bit more as well. Uh, and, and just always try to think about each environment being a unique space. It makes it more fun. It, it really does. It, it's more work, but but it means that every single time you come to a, a new script, you are literally imagining imagining yourself in a new environment you, i think you know without wishing to be disparaging of anybody um it's very easy to fall into a a, a trap of just settling into your uh, comfort zone and it no matter what planet you're on or what environment you're in it kind of always feels the same uh, Don used to say, it looks like everyone's made out of plastic and everything's made out of plastic. It's all made of the same material. Why don't they add texture? And that, so that, you know, texture's become a big part of my work. You know, what does fur look like? What does rock look like? Uh, I, when I, I, I've got a friend of mine who's a, a local artist and I was, he was asking me questions about those kinds of things, you know. He, and I was just sort of saying, well, look, if you... If, if you're drawing a floating island, then think about the rock. Think about the, the different kinds of rock that would make it up. Think about the the, the, the plants. You're not just going to have one type of plant 
on it. If you see a little shrub of, you know, a little sort of copse of, 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 of plants, it's never just one plant. It's a whole bunch of plants all meshed together, you know. Enjoy that, because that makes it more fun to draw too. The, 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 the kind of dis- difference in the nature of each of the, the size of the leaves and the, the, all of that plays into it. And all of that is, uh, is actually really fun when you start getting into it. It makes it um, almost answering one of the questions earlier on. Actually, what are, what are the things you really enjoy? That's that I really love getting into that. Sometimes, if I, if I'm struggling with the, the storytelling and the plotting or the the figure work, I, I can uh, I know and I, I know I've got a large area which is all background and all environment. Maybe a big tree. I can noodle away on the tree happily for an afternoon very very <laughs> cheerfully <laughs> man i'm gonna fight back the urge to be a glutton and follow up with my second question which was totally about world building and i'm gonna let that go for a minute because you already answered that last question brilliantly bonus points because you used a fantasy word i love like hinterland and i i really have to just <laughs> chuckle at that when i heard it i was like Really, dude, are you sweet talking me? Like you've already got me as a follower on Twitter. I buy your stuff. Uh, I'm a, I'm there, man. Like you got me. Come on, don't you don't gotta <laughs> add more frosting. I'm gold, but um, I will follow up with it eventually because what you're talking about with world building. I mean, man, you you were this close to hypnotizing me. Um, so I just want to point. I was like sucking in, like screw everybody. Nobody's here with me. I don't care. I don't. I've got this. Like, and also I'm just gonna give a disclosure. Uh, you know we're all learning how to live inside of a box. And my mother-in-law just came home, and I can hear this voice echoing through the wall. And I messaged my wife, like, is that, is that a voice? Is that the TV? And she's like, no, she's home, this and that. I was like, all right, well, let her know she's going to be part of a uh, broadcast. So just the louder <laughs> she gets, the more they hear. I know that I love that answer, and um, I love the fact that she was adding a soundtrack. So now we get to move back to Brad, who asked such a great question about music, which – I'm not mad at him because I wanted to ask one like that too. But Brad, I'm sure you've got another amazing question. I don't want to hold you back, my friend. Uh, getting ready for this interview, it led me to kind of rediscover Testament. Uh, I read it back when it originally came out, but it led uh-huh. me to actually go on eBay and then pick up the the trades again. And I'm looking forward to rereading it. I'm just wondering if you if you know if you have any stories about that project. Uh, you know, was that something that was enjoyable to work on? Uh, what was your kind of takeaway from that project? Uh, I love Doug. He, he's his mind was just fascinating to me. So it was. Um, he was kind of an introduction to a different way of looking at things, a different perspective about reality and, uh, you know, ostensibly quite cynical, but, um, but open-minded and, and bold and fearless, you know, taking on a project like that, you it's almost impossible to avoid controversy. So I was a little nervous um, going into it, but I one of the things that I was excited about is up until that point, I had been um, unfairly, I think, uh, I'd been getting a lot of just crazy testosterone-fueled stuff. You know, that was just a lot of overly muscled dudes punching the crap out of each other. Um, and it, it was, 
you know, I'm not, I don't have a problem with that. I love Lobo, I already said that. Um, but I don't, didn't want to be defined by that. Um, there's, a, there's an example of, for a story, and this is a slight digression again. I, I've been doing lots of these today. When I was doing um, goth for uh, Danzig way back in the day, in, uh, and Danzig and I are quite different personalities, really. I am a complete... Um, <laughs> That's got to be a whole other set of stories, like a different yeah. podcast, right? Well, no, I, I, I don't like to be disparaging of anybody, but um, but but I will will say that I think we we come at the world with a very different slant, and um, you know, I am interested in you know stuff of the mind, really, and I'm a very peace-loving person. I'm not a I'm not a I, I'm not an aggressor. I I, I want the world to be a better place. I want less war. I want less violence. I want less hate. Um, and that's been true of me forever. And yet I kept finding myself drawing very, very violent stories, you know, extremely violent. And sometimes I would really push the violence in the hope that it would evidently be ridiculous. But people, as they want to do, often take it very, very seriously. So, And Goth was a mega, mega violent book. Um, and it, it was fun to do in a kind of heavy metal den kind of, I, to me, it was, I was seeing it as like I'm doing something like Corbin's Den that was bold and fearless and and crazy, but still ultimately didn't have particularly, I would say, in, in any intellectual chops particularly. Um, it was, a, Danzig might disagree with that, but um, <laughs> so... I, I was doing this book and someone wanted to interview me and I didn't realize that their view of the world leaned completely opposite to me. So when we were doing the interview, he was asking what I felt about the Iraq war. And I was saying, well, I don't know if that should be happening. I, I don't see how that's got to do with what just happened. <laughs> and I took it to a completely different tack and was saying, you know, like for me, I think about like, uh, uh, Gandhi walking into battle with an army of people who were on, who had no weapons and the people facing them had to drop their weapons. And he was just like, but dude, you draw, you draw this crazy violent stuff. I don't get it. And I was saying, yeah, I don't like guns. I'm a Brit. Like, um, I don't understand it. It's not my culture. I, I really can't get my head around guns. You know, um, I, I get them from like, uh, hunting point of view and if you live in the outback and i'm not saying ban them completely but i don't get carrying guns around it's just alien to any brit um anyway i did this interview and i'll was, second that it was, right it's, it's, it's not something we ever think about or talk about because it's just not in our culture so we never have to worry about it you never ever get on a train and you know when there's a big when there's, when something happens here I do worry when I go out and step out and I worry about my daughter getting on BART and going into San Francisco because you just you just don't know. It seems so random and explosive. And that is just stuff we don't have to worry about. Anyway, I mentioned this in it. And at the end of the when he put the interview out online, it was just like, oh, of course, Liam Sharp, known for all his peaceful uh, messages like death dealer, goth, death said to preach what you practice what you preach my friend was his line it's like oh man really i'm just gonna go and draw the buddha comic for the rest of my life <laughs> ouch 
you know it's like come on you know it's like i'm a professional artist you 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 get you you do the work that you get i have kids i have a roof to keep over my house you know you know it's it's um you take the jobs and and also drawing those things is is part of your exploration exploration you know is getting to know yourself you push at the edges that's part of our job is to push at the edges if it makes you feel uncomfortable sometimes that's a good thing but I, the the point this is all leading up to is that when I got to work with Dog on Testament, it was the first time that I was really working with someone who had clear intellectual chops on a book that um, was was definitely um, controversial in its way, but it, but it what it was reaching for uh, and what it was trying to say uh, was a pertinent and powerful message and some of those things have, have come true i mean people are still talking about rfid chips being put in their arms and stuff you know like it's a, he was talking about that 10 years ago um more than 10 years ago it's so much of what he was writing about and thinking about was predictive and uh, i mean a lot of his writing about that is is about that kind of stuff anyway um i'm not personally a, a very religious person I'm just not really religious. Um, so it was interesting, too. I mean, I, I have a huge fascination for for that material. And I started out religious, but I, I, I love mythology and I love anthropology. And, and that journey has, you know, it's taken me down lots of different routes. And um, it did change my, my slants and views on things. Uh, but it was interesting with that book because a lot of people didn't pick it up because they thought it was religious. And then a lot of people didn't pick it up because they thought it was anti-religious. So we were kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. And it wasn't really either. You know, it really right. wasn't. It was it was right. it was both yes. and neither at the same time. Um, right. Very interesting story. Yeah, I thought so. So so to do that, I mean, Vertigo had its uh, Vertigo had a lot of class full stop, you know, and to. To work with Doug was fantastic, and uh, I think it was good for me too because it was the first series I did that was it was two years work, um, so it was the first time I, I really saw through a long project uh, and made it right through to the you know, to the end on it, um, which which is a nice thing to be able to until you've done that once you don't know if you can do it yourself and nobody else does either you know. Um, and so it was nice to be able to show that I could. That's a pretty impressive crucible. Um, <laughs> you know, finding out through that sort of experience, like, oh, yeah, all right, let's 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 see how this goes. And can I do this? And yeah. what a discovery. <laughs> um, and I love the insights, man. Thank you. I, I'm, again, fighting the urge to follow up with all sorts of fun questions. Kelly, I know you've got great ones, too. <laughs> um, this one actually a somewhat unplanned question but you mentioned mythology and I'm a huge mythology fan but I would say that I don't know a lot about um, Irish and Celtic mythology do you have a favorite story or a favorite kind of figure or monster or something from uh, Celtic mythology that you could share I think that I mean I'm, I'm the character, and again, it's from Brave and the Bold. I put a lot of them in there. I love Canunas. I've always been fascinated by him. He, there's no stories about him. 
he only exists in sort of artifacts on on cauldrons and shields and things like this um whatever stories there were about him have just been lost to history they've gone so he's kind of he's 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 very elusive but they know that he he was um tied to the underworld and and although he wasn't part of the irish mythology i saw a nice way of pulling him in that was appropriate like he was a guardian of it and because he was the the, the um the lord of the underworld in a way turn and argues like an underworld so that that was that sort of crossover there he's got the same attributes as, as pan with the with the cloven feet and the horns um so i think he's got a lot in common a common with like pan and, and bacchus um there's an element of a fawn about him uh, and he's also a god of, of, of fertility, which is also, you know, part of Pan and part of Bacchus. Um, so I, I've always, I really love him from the Brave and the Bold. You know, I, I don't want to spoil the last issue, but there's a page in there that was sad for me to draw. <laughs> and then another page shortly after that that was really happy for me to draw. Um so I, I, I'm sort of intrigued by him because of that. I, I love the Arthurian stuff, of course. It's, it's one of those things that um, once you start digging in that, it gets really fascinating. You start looking at the Jeffrey and Monmouth's early stories. I've really had, uh, I, I've got a long-term hope to, to do something with that myth. That, that uh, I mean, all of that is just crazy. When you, when you start looking at the, even the later stuff, the Mort D'Arthur stuff, and um, uh, I'm trying to remember his name, who wrote that now, this really famous character, quite an interesting character. He was like a horse horse thief and involved in all sorts of politics and, and rebellion and got locked up in prison and escaped several times and then locked up again and then wrote the Mort D'Arthur, you know, um, I'm trying to remember his name, it's completely escaping me. So, Thomas Mallory. Thomas Mallory, yeah, of course. Thomas Mallory. Thomas Mallory. It's Arthurian. I can't resist. I've got my yeah. own. Yeah, yeah, go. The stories of Mallory are just fantastic. He's He, he in his own right is just great. So I, I, I have this idea of tying it all up with, you know, uh, Thomas Mallory and uh, but, and also the earlier stuff, the Geoffrey and Monmouth stuff and the talking of Lilac and the, the early versions of, of, um, of Merlin. Uh, you know, and a threefold death. And I, there was a book I read a long, long time ago um, called The Quest of Merlin by um, so it was Tolstoy, uh, not Leo Tolstoy, it was his Joseph Tolstoy. Anyway, it's his nephew, um, English chap. He wrote a, a book of Merlin as well, which is also magnificent. But The Quest of Merlin is a really interesting sort of dissertation on how uh, it became absorbed into basically Christian culture and how before that there hadn't been uh, an image for uh, the devil. And in likelihood, it was probably Canunus that was the sort of root for the cloven feet and the hooves, you know, and that, that sort of idea that became sort of a medieval idea of, of what the devil looked like. It's, it's really fascinating. And the, and the idea that's like you just... Christian invaders coming in, finding people worshipping gods like Canunus and the Celtic gods and everything, and sort of how they were able to 
to take those old gods and sort of flip it around and say, you know, you've been following the wrong guys all this this time. Uh, all of that I really find fascinating. But 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 the book I would really recommend for Irish mythology has got to be Jim Fitzpatrick's The Silver Arm, which he illustrated as well. It's it's really uh, a lovely book. It's kind of got like a, a book of Kells illuminated type text as well. It, 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 he spent so much time going mental doing those <laughs> designs. I've done a little bit of it in The Brave and the Bold, but it was like nothing compared to what he did. <laughs> I've had it uh, never again. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, I have to look that up. Yeah. I, yeah. I recommend it. It, it. You can still get pretty decent quality copies of it it's a really nicely made book so i've i've had mine for sort of 30 years and it still looks brand new nice just another thing to add to the reading list when you know you've got time to read which i think we all have a little bit extra of right now which is kind of an awesome thing uh great question kelly that's man i've already been making notes kendra i know you've got more to add what's your next question my next question would be who would be your like dream person to work with that you haven't already um gosh that's a good one um i i really like warren ellis's writing he's he's somebody i mean i've known warren for a long time it's great working with grant we'd we'd left that so long it's crazy we've known each other for ages but finally got to to work with Grant. Um, there's Kelly Sue DeConnick. I'm talking to her. I think we both love to work with each other. Um, she, she's just brilliant. Um, and I would love to do something, something with Frank Miller, if ever, you know, the appropriate thing came up. Just, I mean, he never has to do another book again. He's already carved in stone for all time, you know. Um, but I look back at things like Electra Assassin that he did with Bill, and it's just mind blowing to me. I just find it incredible. And even if even the uh, the the Love and War graphic novel that he did with Bill as well is just a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Um, so when I you know when I think of Frank, I think about I think of Ronin, um, I think of Dark Knight Returns, I think of Electra Assassin. They're the, they're the sort of perfect books for me, really, I think. Uh, um, but I, I've been really lucky. I have got to work with uh, some fantastic people. I think Frank Miller, uh, Mark Miller, too, I always like his kind of the wit in his scripts. And it, there's always like a, a great kernel of an idea in the middle of it. There's the concepts that he comes up with and he builds a story around. There's, there's there's always a lot of wit in in that um and again i've known mark for an awful long time but it's it's timing and it, it, these when these windows happen it, it's you just have to grab them but um i, I honestly can't complain I've, I've worked with the some of the absolute best especially mark dematis on on man thing back in the day that remains one of my happiest um experiences even though it didn't end uh, how we would have probably liked it to end, but it was, uh, it was, uh, it, it was a just we 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 both still we both still fawn over each other on that <laughs> on that run. <laughs> Sounds like a beautiful loving. It was um, totally, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 
Kendrick, great question. I love it. Steve, I'm I'm guaranteed you have more in store. Oh, yeah. Um, so you said who you'd like to work with in the future that I haven't as yet. But obviously, I want to touch on the other side of it. That I mean, obviously, I've, I've followed your work forever from 2008 through to. It sounds uh, you like were, yeah, I was amazed how far you go back with that stuff. Oh, definitely. I mean, uh, <laughs> your, your run on, on Hulk with Peter David, and that's an iconic um, run. What, what he did with the character and, and your take on it was just stunning but i do notice that you do adapt your style it does change um story to story to suit the story matter to suit the, the writer's talent but who would you say influenced you who's the artist that you think made uh liam sharp the artist he is today and living or dead who, who would the artist that you'd probably love to collaborate with um the most be there's, I think I can boil it down to a few, but well, quite a few. <laughs> it's not, it, I, the people I can see in my work still, if, you know, if you were to look for it, a lot of them were in the studio book. So it's, it's Barry Smith, Michael Kaluta, uh, Bernie Wrightson, oh, yeah. Jeff Jones, you know, those three guys, the uh, four guys are yes. just extraordinary. I think you can see traces of all of them in what I do. Um, I Definitely think Bernie Wrightson. Uh-huh. Or I think you can see Barry Smith in my trees. <laughs> and um, uh, I think Mobius. Mobius was probably the one that encouraged me, not directly, but just looking at his art, to see that you could change your style to suit the story. Because he, does, he will do it panel to panel. Um, with yeah. total confidence. And, and I think this is the thing. It's all right to do it, but you need to get to a certain level before you start playing with those, you know, with that with that as, as a tool. I think, unfortunately, I, I was trying to run before I could walk when I was younger. Um, and sometimes I was putting style over, over storytelling. So while, you know, I look back with some fondness at, at the, the Hulk stuff, it, you can see that I was doing the 90s uh, big pin-up pages and, and 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 kind of enjoying that and actually shying away a little bit from the storytelling and, and more kind of just enjoying drawing a giant muscly green man, <laughs> which is a weird that's, thing to admit. That's what to people wanted to read, though. <laughs> <laughs> Take your pleasures where you can. Yeah, it, it's funny though how it changes. Like. I really rarely do like a big posturing pin-up pose these days. It doesn't occur to me to do that because um, I'm just thinking about the story and panel to panel and how it flows. And every now and again, I'll, I'll, I'll take a, a moment because it's all right in the context of a bigger narrative, but pick your moment. You know, Don't try and make it every page like we, we did back then. Um, but we were all so young, you know, it was, it was just like, it was, it's hard to, think that marvel uk we were all just kids um but yes yeah, so i can see those guys there's a bit of jim lee in there there's a definitely don lawrence in there uh, in, uh i would say with the textures if you look at don's black and white stuff that he was doing on like Carl the viking and stuff um you yeah. can see you can see my influence there uh, his influence on me there um 
and uh, Brian Bolland, of course. How could I not include him? He, he, I think in Bolland, I I love the way he did places so much, the, the way he rendered places. Like, there's a legacy of that in the way I do places. It's not quite the same, but it's there. But there's also like there's also you know I think a bit of Wally Wood in the way that I draw places too. So there's a whole lot of stuff. <laughs> there's a lot of there's Frazetta in there too. Um, as much as anything, I think that some of the inks and uh, the way that he will, what Frazetta does amazingly is he will he will take the 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 like there might be smoke or uh, yeah clouds or whatever that are drifting away from the character in these black and white drawings, but they are they sort of follow through in the way that he renders. So everything is pulled together, uh, and the way he composes a picture like a having it can get really quite loose around the edges and it all pulls your focus right to the to the the, the central figure and the, the, the thing that you're most you're meant to be focusing on um and he, he's really good at that so i think i learned a lot from from him just studying that uh, and and there'll be plenty more that um that i could mention i mean frank miller again just storytelling and bilson kevich is i, I really in my heart, I want to cut loose completely and really go wild with my comics. He, he, uh, talking to Bill, he, he sort of—it's interesting. He did it at the right time, and he was able to pull the audience with him. And what, so what he did was, he was drawing in a very, very mainstream style, and then he got a book that nobody really cared about, which is the Moon Knight book. And classic. It's yes. just brilliant. And then that one issue lands when the hit it story. It's just like, and then suddenly Bill Sinkovich is there, fully formed. And it's like, my God, <laughs> amazing. And it's like, that's it. Everything changes after that. Bill is, Bill is now Bill. And then he goes from that onto, you know, the, the, uh, the mutant book. And, and again, it's like, it's the, it's not a massive selling book. He's got enough room to be experimental because there isn't anybody who's got a, you know, who's going to really, they haven't, they haven't got the big corporate heads looking at it, making sure that it's easily accessible to kids and that there's all of those aspects play into it. So he was really clever in the, how he picked that moment of that title. And in fact, we had a chat just recently and I was talking the same, you know, he just said, I was saying, you know, we're just talking about the future and I'm saying, I just want to find things that I can really start to really push, um, myself on you know i feel like i'm sort of ready now in my 50s to 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 cut loose and because i feel like i've got the grounding and the storytelling and the enough of a recognizable style at the heart of it that i can start to play around with the the, the surface the surface of it the, the sort of um you know what the textures and the finish and the the the, the 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 general feel of it but you have to be able to take your audience with you and he was able to do that in increments and then you know you, you go through the new mutants with him and then you go on to Electra with him and then Bill is you know going from the black and white building 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 and then suddenly he's painting and now, now he's really Bill uh, now we know that and really I suppose what I'm saying is I want to get to the point that I'm controlling the art from the all the way through to the finished result the full colour and you know, page to page and that that's my end game now is that i i 
get to do more projects where I'm, I'm doing the whole thing, which is some, obviously some people are going to go, you bastard, you're taking my job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, talk about evolution, because with Bill Sinkevich's early work, he was more or less almost like another Neil Adams, but then he just totally went his own way. And like you said, oh, yeah. getting pieces of cloth and rags and textures and almost building a comics page rather than drawing or painting it. But I do yeah. see that evolution looking at your work from your 2000 ADs through Testament, through the work you did with Stan Winston studios to right. Hulk to now. I mean, there's even a, a difference. I mean, like you said, the textures from brave and the bold to your work with on the green lantern. And I'm just really sad that it's not going to carry on after the, the seasons you've got planned. Cause it's, it's gorgeous stuff to look at. So lovely. Thanks for that, Liam. Really, well, really. Thank cool. you, mate. It, honestly, it will be 24 issues, so it's a good. It's over 500 pages all in. Um, it'll be four volumes, hopefully one massive uh, mega volume at some point. The um, omnibus. Yeah, that I'm really excited to see, and we're having a lot of fun on this issue. In fact, we just did a um, an issue that is completely the opposite direction and is is sort of a Kirby um Starenko type issues totally oh now you're talking my language <laughs> it's so we, we've got the really painted like um we've got a the, the issue three that just came out which is like a heavy metal issue uh, heavy metal magazines very sort of painted digital paintings yes. and, and then there's the uh after that there's almost a Sinkevichy slash mobius one which is very strange and then there's a completely uh pop art one which is um was actually so much fun it, it was you know it's got big dots and everything and it's, it's people are going to go what how did we end up here and like, but but i love that 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 we've that grant's just been yeah dude just do this just do that let's let's enjoy this we're on the last leg now so this is a we're kind of doing the we're, we're pushing the boat out having loads of fun taking it as far as we can without sacrificing the story I know some people have been like, what the hell's going on? I can't understand the language. But actually, that's a fantastic sort of throwback to the John Broom beatnik period of writing that I, I absolutely Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, and, and it's not that hard to read. You just got to you just got to go with it. You just got to kind of <laughs> you just got to vibe with it and, and enjoy it. It's, it should all make sense. Everything's a bit kind of messed up. And there's a reason for that, which Grant. Grant's always got a reason for everything. So, Brilliant. thank you, Liam. Seth, yeah, what's yeah. your next question, brother? Uh, I'm going to be honest. I'm reeling and spinning. Yeah, that that painted issue, that that experimental jet, Liam. That was that was just and the clouds. I'm I've been having a lot of fun with your Green Lantern. There's just <laughs> been some stuff in there that I'm like laughing to myself, and. And it feels like such an homage to the great stories that came before in this retelling. And so here's the thing. I'm listening to all you guys giving these great, amazing questions and the answers you're, you're offering, Liam. And it's pulling me through this fun thing where um, I'm reminded of my exposure, which was weirdly because I loved fantasy books, which we were chatting a little bit about. Yeah. Um, I was exposed because I also grew up in a very extremely religious household. Right. And one of my only exposures early on to Celtic mythology was actually through a Christian take or kind of Christian author guy uh, named Stephen Lawhead, who did a, okay. a Merlin series. And um, 
And I was kind of blown away because the more I read, first it was his Merlin book, which totally shook me up. I'd never read anything like it. And I'd read a lot of great Arthurian books up to that point. And I loved the Mallory stuff. But this take was, one, so immersed in uh, the Celtic identity. And so Tirnanog became this idea where I was trying to pronounce this stuff because he had in the back like this glossary. And I'm chuckling to myself now because – one of the other things that you brought up was this idea of, of a character whose history isn't really known. And it was right. this exposure to, to Lawhead that brought me into stuff like Campbell. Um, I'm slowly yeah, working yeah. my way through Peter Graves' uh, The White Goddess. And with that, I'm exposed to this idea of like every time there was a new kind of version. You know, sometimes it was a Moses, like sometimes it was like an Abraham, like sometimes it was a, um Egyptian take. And that these replacement of the gods, whether it was a Hercules or something else you know, you're, you're constantly retelling their story or there's someone moving into place, um, which I love because it, it moves into this idea that I, I, I know you were talking about and I, I had all these follow-up questions to, but this idea behind when you're world building and yeah. where it is you find yourself, you know, uh, getting sucked into, where, where it is that you're just like, um, um, this is what's working for me today. Is there ever a place where you know in the world building that comes naturally where you just find yourself like sinking in because you're like, look, I know one thing. I know how I want to approach either the atmosphere or the rocks or the trees when it comes to this story. And that's going to come naturally and everything else is going to start to come out of that. Or is it less of an intention and more like when you were describing the inking and it's like, look, I'm going to go with what feels good today and the stuff that feels inspired and um, I guess inspirational and inspired um, and, and that are prodding me along to keep pushing in this direction. Um, it, it's, it's again, these are all great questions. The, the, the thing I enjoy most, and I think where I'm most comfortable, is is where it's um, either a, a very organic, natural background or a high end sort of sci fi background, because the two are the the two allow you to be. Um, you know, there's a game where if you do it, like you, you get a pad of paper and you put a, a squiggle down without even thinking about it. And then you try and pick the picture out of it. Um, and Mobius does it as a sort of automatic drawing thing. He would he did a lot of his backgrounds that way. And I do exactly the same with those kinds of landscapes. It's it's it's, it's almost a, a channel channeling um, something inside rather than overthinking it. If I think too hard, it becomes rigid. It stops feeling real um, and it starts to, I don't know, feel like it's been, it, it just feels fake. It's it's odd. I think the reason being is that, that actual things are chaotic. You can sort of see the order of, of uh, like a house in theory is, you know, just the walls and the windows and the doors and everything. But then everything that's in it is going to be specific to the people within that place and then beyond that house there's a wall and then within the garden there's something <laughs> that's actually going on it isn't just a, a you know herbal tr- a herb garden and a, a tree in a, a little planted area it's it's a, a bunch of random things then beyond that and beyond that and beyond that and everything is layers on layers and layers and uh, you can't you start to clean it up and and try and overthink it you lose the the sort of chaotic sense of that reality it's like a tree it's just uh, i don't overthink a tree when i draw it now i allow for the mistakes the mistakes often make it look more real than if i if i 
overplanned it. I, I don't sort of meticulously craft every nook and cranny on it. And the branches are all very spontaneous. That's what. Yeah, I wouldn't be able to get through the pages if I overthought it. <laughs> um, so that it's allowing room for those kind of happy mistakes that actually make it more realistic. And I, I, I just really like seeing where it'll take me. You know, it, it's I mean, of course, you have to apply some rules to it. You know, this, you know, this area is going to be a tree. You know, beyond that, it's going to be some rocks. Uh, I, I will map out very loosely uh, the pencil in pencil the area, but I don't fully know what it's going to look like until it's, it's finished. And I, and I will do the thing of getting a rag and slapping down some just random ink splodges, just to, and, and then and then draw out of that and find the form out of out of that randomness. Um, and it, it, it's really fascinating what is suggested to you by by those random shapes. You know? And I, I I just really love that i feel like i'm discovering a place in the process of doing it that's that's fun Um, i love i love that idea of your discovery because it seems like it's worked so well for you as you were describing how you had you know took a solution to a problem and a problem and then the solution became a character that you loved and you know took such a, a so it sounds like that discovery process works out really well um I'm looking at the clock at the fact you've given us almost two hours of your time and I don't want to ask too much more. Is it okay if we do one more question from each person and, and well, wrap it up? And, that's fine. Uh, I did want to say to your point, you were talking about all of those books as well yeah. uh, in reference to, to um, the Green Lantern, because it occurred to me that that everything you said is kind of mirrored in what we're doing. And, and it's interesting <laughs> in that, yes, it is paying homage to, all the Green Lantern stuff that came before, um, since the John Broom period onwards, really. Um, and uh, you know, it's a very loving tribute, but it is also, you know, almost paying homage to different artists of different eras too, and d- different, you know, different times within the within the uh, the comic industry. And I've I've really enjoyed that exploration of not just the mythology of, of, of Hal Jordan and the Green Lantern, but also, you know, the history of, of, of this medium that we all love, you know. And it comes through in every issue. And I'm I'm amazed that that crazy meandering that I was doing, trying to pull all those threads together, actually made sense to you, for which I'm, <laughs> I'm shocked and stunned. Because I was like, there's no way anybody understood what I just said. And I just got that question out, thank God. because um, I know the references. <laughs> <laughs> that, that really helped me out. Um, because when I try and start talking sometimes with folks, it's like, there's about a five second window before the glaze goes over the eyes. And I'm like, I've lost them. I've Mate, lost them. Every uh, time I open my mouth, I feel that that's me. So. Okay. So oh, I'm no. not alone. All right. So I'm, I'm among good company. Um, thank you. We're going to do one more question from everybody. Um, because my God, if I just this based on loving the answers, I, I honestly would have just stolen about half of your day if not half your life man we we totally appreciate it brad get get me out of the way man what's your next question uh a lot of your work is very a lot of your comic work is very uh medium specific like it's it it, like it's such a pure form of like sequential art storytelling but i'm curious if there's any particular story that you worked on 
that you could see or would want to see adapted for uh, film or television or maybe one that would be the most logical to adapt for film or television? That's a really, really, really good question. Um, again, aren't they all? Um, the best answer I have is something I can't talk about, unfortunately. I have a project that I'm working on um, that while it's still medium specific, I could definitely see uh, could spin out in lots of different directions. Um, that that that's uh, it's it's a creator own thing that I've got in in my back. It's basically it's one of those ones that keeps coming in and out of the drawer that I've been working on for a long time, and I I don't want to say any more because I, you know, I'm hoping that there'll be a point, you know, some about a year and a half from now when it'll it'll be a possible. We'll, we shall see. But I, I'm very excited about uh, this potential story. So fingers crossed. But um, I, I think there's other things too. I think like my, I think the world that I created in God Killers, the novel, I, could, I would love to see that get realized. And maybe it might be a better place to start with something like the Caged Aurora book, the, the, the follow-up that we were talking about earlier. Um, I think that has got that kind of potential for for other medium, whether it's whether it's a TV series or or film. I mean, I I love film. It's, it's like music. I, I, most most people who love comics and love uh, music. I mean, it's mediums, isn't it? Storytelling. I think it's really about storytelling. It's most people who love storytelling and also like comics, which is one of the great mediums of storytelling also love films, also love novels, also love music, also, you know. Um, so it's like when people do uh, concept albums of of of, uh, of comics sometimes, it's like, you know, you can see the potential of those crossovers. I, I hesitate to say how successful they always are, but um, but you can see how and why these things happen, you know. Yeah, and Brad, way to ask a question with some like lingering mystery for the rest of us over the next year and a half. Like, really, last question, you got to mic drop the rest of us like that. I, nice I you've done. Exactly right. Like, way to set you know the bar. Everybody else, your last question. No pressure, just you know, lingering mystery. Yeah, courtesy of Brad. <laughs> that was absolutely brilliant, Kelly. No pressure, but you're you're up next. <laughs> Oh, God. Um, <laughs> we'll be fine. <laughs> so as someone who's worked as both a writer and an artist, um, obviously in both ca- capacities, you have to work with an editor at some point. So what to you would you say makes a really strong editor? I think um, it's different. It's different for different stages of your career. It really is. I think when you're starting out, you want all the help you can get. And a good editor really knows what makes great storytelling, what makes strong composition and can help steer and guide you through through those uh, early stages. You know, and I, I was lucky to have Paul Neary early on. He really, really helped on the death said stuff. And actually, when I went past that, I felt like I spent quite a bit of time floundering before I, I, I started finding my feet again. Actually, I think it was 
probably the Man Thing series that I was the first time I felt like I was getting con- proper control over how I was telling the story. Um, so it took quite a while, and, I, and editorial guidance before that was when it was hands-on like it was with Paul. He was he was really encouraging and had loads of suggestions. And it was more about suggestions. He would show me stuff. It was this classic show, don't tell, you know. He wouldn't tell me to redraw things. He would he would ignite my imagination and he'd ignite my enthusiasm. And uh, and he would show me something that uh, that made his point and I would totally get it and that would immediately be reflected in what I was drawing. Um, but then as you get older, I think there's a point like, I'm, I think, what am I, 30, I'm 30, 30, 32 years deep into the industry now. Um, and I'm, and as in grants, you know, I'm, I'm in my early 50s, grants just turned 60. There's a point where it's like, if we don't know it now, you shouldn't be hiring us. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and at that point, it's like, stay out of the way unless it's a glaring anomaly. You know, you, you, you're, I think you're hired at that point because you're trusted to, to do, uh, you know, to be you and do it as well as you can. And if, if, you, are, if you last that long in the industry, you've learned, there's a reason that you have. Um, and it's not to say you can't make mistakes. And that's not to say that you're, you're too big for your boots that you won't, you know, make changes. I, I definitely have, uh, I, I get more suggested changes from editorial and i get from grant um but what's lovely about it is because of the point we're at i can say i can explain it through and and 99 times out of 100 they'll go oh fair enough leave it as is then that's fine uh it, it might it might be that um they just didn't see why i'd done something or they didn't see it in the wider context or there's a page later on that it explains why i've just done something um, but that's that's the thing that I think you get to a point where you're so um, you're sort of, sort of hyper aware of all the elements that are going on that that you're I mean you have to remember too I've I've published I've been a publisher and I've you know I did a Madefire which was a digital pioneering uh, storytelling platform um, so I've spent time the other side of the table working with other artists in a, a pretty much an editorial capacity um so i think as much like a like an editor as i do a, a writer or, a, or an artist so i'm i'm already ahead i think at this point i'm ahead of anyone else and i've spent i spend that's the other thing actually with my editor who said this to me he said oh of course you spend longer with these pages than anybody else here the writer doesn't spend as long. The colorist doesn't spend as long. Or the inker, nobody does. You you spend longer with the, each page than anybody else. So I trust you to to be you know to to be doing that job, and that's that's lovely. And I, you have to earn that, of course. Uh, and 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 I could easily go on to another book in a another company with some rookie editor who wouldn't understand that, who'd be trying to tell me how to do everything because that. That can happen too, um, and you know, and I don't know what I'd do under those circumstances. But <laughs> <laughs> this 
it, it harkens back a little bit to what I was saying earlier on. The the thing with all of that is, do you want the best out of somebody? And if you want the best out of somebody who has been around and is a veteran and really knows the stuff, and my God, I hope I would know it by now, um, then you're going to get the best out of them if they're enjoying it and they're not having to stop and start and stop and start and change this and change that and keep reviewing everything because it's a really, really laborious process. It takes hours and hours and hours. It's exhausting. And, um, you know, there's a very, very limited amount of time for you to get each page done and each issue done. And if it's going to be put out there, then you want to allow the artist to have as long as possible on each page. And any time you take away from those pages by adding work, uh, is going to impact on the quality of the issue overall. So they're just things you have to bear in mind, especially if somebody's got a very um, meticulously detailed style. I, I can't imagine who I'm referring to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> could be anybody. <laughs> could, could be anybody, yeah. It's pretty much most people. Actually, you know, you got to. The comics these days are pretty amazing. People, I, I'm always blindsided by people who 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 can't see how good uh, a lot of comics are these days there's so much talent out there there's so many amazing artists and if you compare what's actually on the page across all of it you know from the colorists to the inkers to, to 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 the pencilers almost you know every title is 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 way more packed and dense and and full certainly in terms of the art the I know people sometimes feel like the art, the, the stories are a little bit um, drawn out and maybe haven't got that issue to issue density. You definitely can't say that with with uh, Grant's sort of hyper hyper compressed storytelling. He puts so many, you get you get an issue worth of stuff in a panel with Grant. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, I think there's room for all of these things and uh, and. You know, we, we're living in a, 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 an amazing time for comics. I agree, actually. Brad has referred to it as the golden age. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Yes, I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. And I love that you brought up the idea of trust and the freedom that comes with it when you've earned it. And that, wow. Thank you, man. That's a, Kelly, great question. Wow. You guys are really, you know, pulling out the big stuff for these final. Okay. Okay, I, I, I see where, where we're taking things. Okay, I'm I'm fine with whatever I end up with when we get to Kendra. You know, just go ahead and wow me. I'm ready. Just go ahead. Okay, I mean, your your last answer kind of leads into my question. My question would be: Is of the comics that are available today, regardless of of who's setting them out, DC, Marvel, Diamond, whoever. What is a few of the titles that you would recommend readers do pick up that are worth the read? Oh man, uh, what am I getting currently? I'm a, I'm a little out of the loop, but um, trying to think of some of the more recent stuff that I really loved. I mean, I, I, the the uh, saga stuff, I just really adore that. It's uh, it's brilliant, isn't it? <laughs> just fantastic. Pretty much anything Sean Murphy does, I love. I thought his White Knight was great. Um, what a simple. Uh, why has yeah. nobody thought about that before? So, so, so simple. Um, I, I really um, also loved uh, 
the uh, miracle, uh, not miracle man, uh, Mr. Miracle. I thought it was great. I got the trade and just sat, read it in one sitting. Um, everything about that I loved. You know, the fact that it was brave enough to to address depression and young family life and suicidal tendencies and you know and and be a little bit um not necessarily clear about what was real and what wasn't and whether it was all actually happening or whether it wasn't and i mean it was it was a very um what a fantastic juggling act of of, of taking something the something of a kirby quality with those old gods and new gods and um the, the the old new gods and and putting that spin on it all with those characters so it just i just thought it was terrific um but yeah they're, they're the ones that spring to mind off the top of my head i'm sure there's many more <laughs> another legendary question okay steve go ahead i don't know how i'm supposed to follow any of you guys up this is ridiculous steve what do you what do you got man before I ask my last question, I just want to say thanks again for taking the time. And I do want to say that um, with the industry the way it is right now and hopefully on the road to recovery once yep. shops reopen and comics are available, again, thank you for the charity stuff you, you're all doing. But something that could help and it's been banded about a lot on the Internet is a big intercompany crossover. So I do want to throw a Death's Head Lobo crossover uh for modern <laughs> dc but it's been far too long since there was a dc 2000 ad crossover back in the days of judge dread and batman so obviously we, we've seen mick mcmahon massimo bernardinelli uh glenn fabry simon bisley i i want to throw a liam sharp um slain or slanya however you want to pronounce yeah. it wonder woman crossover 2000 <laughs> ad dc so that's that's I, I, I want to see you tout that, boss. Oh, I want to read that comic. I will start putting my wheel to the grindstone. But my final question is one I, I end every interview I do with. And obviously, you've been around a while. You are a pro. Um, you've been to conventions. You've had interviews. You've been on podcasts and probably been asked every question under the sun. But... Is there any question you wish someone had asked you whenever and they never did or something you've always wanted to talk about that was never broached? Not necessarily about Liam Sharp, the artist, but Liam Sharp, the man. What do you want our listeners, our readers, your fans to know? What would you like to say? Well, that's uh, the funny thing is we've probably covered some of that in this talk because because I got to talk a little bit about, you know, my dad and my family and my background. And that's often doesn't Lovely happen very often, you know, and, and I, if I'm going to give my dad a shout out, then I can't do it without giving my mom a shout out. She's uh, an incredible lady, you know, and, and both of them uh, supported me when I was a kid. The fact that they backed me because because that was the other thing I despite it being a scholarship, it was a it was only a 50 percent scholarship, still a fee paying school, you know, and I. I really was sort of Harry Potter at Hogwarts at that place. I was the the, the poor kid there, um, and it, they sacrificed for. I mean, one year 
in order to keep me at the place. They lived in a caravan, so they could keep paying the fees. They were astonishing people, and I, I can't, I can't uh, say or express enough um, for how they supported me in a medium that nobody understood at that time. You know, nobody got comics. Nobody knew how you could get into it when we were kids. Not you, when we were know, growing but, up. No, it was no, it was. I, I never imagined when I was watching Elvis and Blue Hawaii that we'd ever end up in in California or you know. <laughs> it, it's uh, obviously that's not California, but you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Somewhere where there's actually sun, we know what yeah, the opposite yeah. end of the spectrum is like, yeah, don't we? Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it's a symbolic thing. Um, so, so that has been nice to be able to talk about those things, you know, um, and the people that back you and the people that support you that are, are really sort of song about i think if there's anything else i think there's it's it's nice to see that we, we might feel it's going slow but there is actually a change in perceptions towards the, the industry and like two years ago my dobby um they had a dobby's got a really great museum a, a fantastic museum it's, it's been around for a long time it, um and they even have a mummy, you know, it's like they've got a mummy and a stuffed gorilla that I remember as a kid. But um, they, they held, they, they did two years ago, they had a 10 week um, retrospective of my work, which was amazing for them to do that. And they, it, it's the best footfall of, of any of the shows that year, which was delightful. And I love that you can have a comic show in a, in a, in a city like Derby that gets tremendous football over a football over a, a, a 10 week period uh, and is, is, is sort of in a, in a, in an establishment that hitherto has been sort of considered a bit stuffy and old school and that the people are accepting these things. And in that year, um, Frank quietly had one up in Edinburgh and um, uh, John Higgins had one in Liverpool all going on at the same time, you know, and I love that this is, uh, this is becoming some something that is more and more um, like seen as a you know culturally significant and appreciated for the the work that goes into it. And it was it was amazing for me to just see. Uh, it was only like forty or fifty pieces, but it, it, it covered the whole span of my career, and it's funny to be able to trace the uh, the work from those early two thousand eighties. Well, even helping Don out as an assistant right through to uh, the, the Wonder Woman stuff that I was doing at the time. Um, really exciting. And, and I think the one other thing that, 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 was, that came out of that show that, that didn't hit me until I was standing in that room was there was only the 40 or 50 pieces, but each piece was big. And, and I, I, I didn't know how I was going to open the, the sort of addressed to the, the room there was a lot of people came to the opening ceremony and I had to talk to them I was only meant to talk for 15 minutes but I went on for something like 50 minutes or something ridiculous um, it just came pouring out my parents were there and it, it just came pouring out and, and it made me sort of humble to think about them and their support for me through all of that but also I it it, it I'd just been walking around with the curator and I said, the thing is every single one of these pages and some of them are big, 
they're started at the beginning of a day and finished at the end of that day. And then the next day I have to do it again. And then the next day I have to do it again. And that doesn't stop. And it's hard for people to comprehend. I think sometimes when people see the actual work and the scale and the size of it and the detail and the work in it and realize that it's generally done in a single day, it it, it puts a different slant on it. Uh, And it, it gives people a deeper appreciation seeing it in the flesh of of the craft that goes into the industry and i'm not really just talking about me i'm talking about anyone who does it um and it's the same for writers you know just that endless coming up with idea after idea after idea after idea and it's very easy to sit outside of that and to poke holes in it but everyone who does it does it for love and everyone's working very very hard to uh to to, to put the work out there. No, none of us are doing it with cynical intent. We do it because this is a medium that we are born to. So, yeah, that's my answer. <laughs> Brilliant. I could not have asked for a better one. Thanks, Liam. That, that's fantastic. And thanks to your parents as well. So it was your version of Hogwarts. It might not be you're a wizard, Harry, but you're an artist, Liam. Thank yeah, you for that. That's right. Brilliant. Yeah, cheers. Pleasure. And... Clearly, as we've seen from your work, man, uh, a wizard when it comes to the art. So, you know, the comparisons we can keep drawing. I'm I'm good with it. Uh, Steve, that was one of my favorite questions to ask someone is at the end, what, what have we missed? And since you did it so perfectly and that's an answer I I don't even want to, you know, mess around with because I, I loved everything it had to say. It, it leaves me with a question, Liam. Um, you recently had this great post that you were awoken from sleep and burning with this idea of a project and began scripting it out. Is this the one that you were talking about earlier that you can't really talk about for the next year and a half, that mystery that, that Brad had sort of touched upon with his question? And yes, if so, okay, then I'm moving (laughs) away from that. Considering that possibility, here's my final question. You, you know what the great things are that artists of your generation were able to learn, um, recreate, and carry to heart. When it comes to the art that you're creating, you had these masters you could look back on. You're at a point now where you can see the next generation of artists coming up. Do you see either you can give names or you can give uh, qualities or skills or examples, however you want to list them. But do you see in that next generation or maybe even next two generations of artists coming up, the things that they are taking from your generation, from the masters who came before you, things that kind of hearten you to what you were talking about earlier, like how amazing (laughs) comics and their art have become and where you see some of those great you know, lineages of, of those masters who came before being, you know, carried on by the newer generations. Yeah, I, I mean, there's just, I think there's a lot of ma- amazing stuff happening, especially like in the, almost in the book marketplace, you know, some of the young, uh, it's almost more teen oriented, probably less mainstream. Uh, things like Monstrous is really interesting. Um, the, the kind of the, the fact that finally we're stopping completely dividing the idea of manga with comics it means the same thing. They are the same thing. I, I, I don't. I've never understood why the two things are separate. But I, I, I'm enjoying where there's these these hybrids. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm trying to think of the 
there's a couple of those other books that, that came out that were more through bookshops that were really fascinating and they're being a little bit elusive for me but they're they're uh oh gosh what was the one it was just like an amazing it might be might have had a monster in the title as well my <laughs> daughter's got it upstairs but it, it all looked like it was drawn on a on a on a lined pad and every page was just monster calls or oh, sorry a monster calls oh a monster calls it might be that one it might be that one <laughs> um i mean there's just there's just a lot of stuff out there and i love that the um indie uh, creator scene has just grown and grown as well you know i, I know it's hard for some of the shops to deal with the amount of books out there but you can't exactly stop <laughs> people do <laughs> it's like what are you oi you lot stop it leave it to the pros you know? like they're coming up with wonderful stuff that breaks the rules and isn't sort of a, as entrenched in, in 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 the legacy as as perhaps we are um and i think of course every medium should be challenged and every medium should, should be chipped at it's great to to have rules but Sometimes it's it's the people who come in without really knowing those rules that that push and drive things forward and uh, gives a fresh perspective. So you know I I really support the like all the independent comic people that are out there doing it for the love of it because they're there supporting us as well. You know. Agreed. Um, uh, I just think it's an amazing medium. It, it, I think it's, it's becoming more boutique. It, pe- people worry that it's becoming um, smaller, the sales are getting smaller. Yes, they are getting smaller, but there are more and more comics all the time. So it's, and and in some way the quality goes up. So more audience, more audiences are being tailored for. It's a bit like boutique coffee shops or beer <laughs> tap rooms everywhere. You know, the, the amount of, uh, I, I love my beer. I'm on on tap. <laughs> I, I forget what number of I've got friends who are up in you know seven thousand unique beers. I, I'm, I'm not that far <laughs> off, but I'm I'm doing pretty well. Um, uh, but it, it's there's there's an equivalency there. It's not just one brand that serves everybody, or three brands that serves everybody. And the same's happened with music. The same's happened with comics. The same's happened with beer. The same's happened with coffee. There's a there's a boutique thing going on, which means more of us get what we like and we can find what we love and we can try lots of other things too so there's way more choice and there's way more you know for for us to enjoy really um uh, so i i I just think that's great i i do think that if we could get more comics in more hands and there was more outlets for them that would be great i don't know what the solution is for that at all um but i think cons probably help i i think it would be better for cons if they put the big stars at the back of the hall so you had to go past all the comic shops first (laughs) good strategies um but i love the points you're bringing up about the evolution you know how many more choices there are available what success has meant for the opportunities and how the independents are able to pave the way in different directions without you know adhering to the well nobody does that and these are the reasons why but they're asking the why and then without any concrete no, you can't. And even when they do, they, they still do it. And the success that comes out of it, that's a that's a great example, man. Right. I appreciate and then, it. And then you know that it's done for love. It's done for no other reason. You know, 
anything done for love has got to be given the time of day. You're uh, you're preaching to my choir, man. That they're singing a, an a cappella in the background. I can hear them. <laughs> they're they're cheering along. Um, I, they 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 have pointed out on this uh, show on a few occasions. I am a champion of optimism and hope. And uh, yeah, man, I. I I love that 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 point you just added. Like I was like, yep, okay, I'm 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 right there, just singing the hallelujahs. Like let's get to it. Uh, <laughs> hey, you know, we're gonna go through the and thank you for that great answer. Um, and for all the time you've spent with us today, man. I, oh, I it's been a pleasure. It's thank well, you. Yeah, it's been a it's been a treat. Um, I I know that there's plenty of people listening who are like, oh, okay, so you didn't ask my question, and I had better questions, and I want to ask them, or I have more questions. How can people make contact with you, keep up with what's going on? We like to, you know, let people know where you are, how they can reach you. And, you know, if there's a best platform or this is where you should keep your eye, you know, any of those you'd like to give a, a quick recognition to or point out for folks so they can make their way towards you. Well, I've been increasingly told by my artist friends and also by my teenage children and my grown-up children too um that really what i should be concentrating on these days is instagram so there is a liam sharp official um, mm. which which i am uh, starting to populate and actually my my uh, my That's oldest great. son Lorcan, he he's uh, he's done a really beautiful job of helping me make it he did this you know they do this thing where they you can you can put grids of like nine images that make one big picture in a square and right so he's made it really he's, he's made it really fancy <laughs> he's done a much better job than i would have done so he's been guiding me through it and telling me what i need to do and uh, I, I think it's looking quite pretty so yeah that's that's where i'm starting to i'm feeling like a luddite the older i get it's because um, <laughs> i founded a You're not alone bloody, i know that <laughs> i co-founded a, 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 a progressive tech storytelling company and i'm struggling to figure out instagram <laughs> <laughs> so no but it's uh, that's probably as good a place to start as any and obviously i'm on twitter liam r sharp and uh i'm on facebook too but um i, I on those places I, I you know it's the frustrating thing on facebook is you can't add any more people it's ridiculous they have this glass ceiling but i usually post on there and if people comment i, I try really hard to be responsive uh, across the platforms and engage with with people i obviously you've, you've seen i i, I don't <laughs> I, I try to be uh, i try to be to keep it civil and to uh, stray away from the, the trigger points it's just i haven't got i'm i, I am too old and too tired <laughs> got time. It's just like, oh shut up <laughs> um yeah, I can honestly say that I've experienced that. I, I unabashedly follow this guy on Twitter. I just followed you on Instagram while you were talking, and I was like, Liam McCormick, Sharp, Fish. Okay, I'm in. Done. Um, and the art's gorgeous, and I'm just to encourage anybody else, uh, you know, check out those places, man. Leave the comments. The guy will listen. He will respond, uh, you know, time permitting and life permitting and we also know he's doing amazing art. Um, I'm also joined with an amazing group of people, and I want to make sure that if there was someone who they want to reach out to about what we were talking about today, that they can know how to find you. Brad, how can folks find you out there in the wide, uh, wide world? You can find me writing news and reviews, DC Comics News. Uh, and I'm also 
on the Mad Love podcast about the Harley Quinn uh, animated show. And you can follow me on Twitter at FlickyB1. Awesome. And Kelly, how about you? Where can folks find you? Um, you can find me doing opinion and editorial pieces for DC Comics News and also on our main podcast and the Mad Love Harley Quinn cast. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter at Kel Gaines Wright. Awesome. Kendra, how about you? Where can they find you? I think I'll echo everyone else and say that I can be found on the Mad Love uh, Harley Quinn podcast as well as on Twitter at Devour All Words. Um, I can also be found on Facebook as Kendra Hale and on Instagram as Interesty. Steve, where can everybody find you? Um, most of my damage is done on news reviews and interviews for DC Comics News and Dark Knight News. And the easiest way to find those is just to do a Google search for Steve J. Ray. But of course, I've got my own uh, website, Two Fantastic Universes, we talk about every kind of fandom not just dc and comics but music wrestling uh rock and roll horror books you name it and that's fantastic universes if you want to have a chat and just talk to me about anything you like catch me on twitter at l stevo e-l underscore s-t-e-e-v-o and i've got to say seth and uh, liam i nearly got in serious trouble there thank you both for reminding me uh, my son, Adam, who writes for the websites too, reviewed uh, Brave and the Bold for Dark Knight News, and he wanted me to say thank you oh. for marrying his first love of fantasy with comic books when you did the Wonder Woman um, Batman team up for Brave and the Bold. So thank you so much for awesome. that one. I shall track, track down his, uh, his, his review. You actually made a nice comment about one of them. Oh, once, I so already you did. already have. <laughs> so that's why I say you do interact with your fans. You're brilliant at that. So thank you for that. And thank you from both of us, from me and from Adam. Uh, uh, Seth, where can the world of his mother find you, brother? Uh, Steve, one great save. Like, well-timed, executed. <laughs> that was, like, from the fire. Like, wait, before I'm gone, Had I have done, to. Yeah, make... You saved my life there. I would have got in deep trouble when Adam heard this podcast otherwise. He would have been like, Dad, we got to talk. Wait, wait, we're not talking for a while. I'll tell you. And what. I can't escape him because we're not allowed out of the house. So <laughs> yeah. I've been in deep doo-doo. Wow. Um, again, miraculous save. I'm your host, Seth Singleton. Um, I'm just thankful to be here. Uh, if you want to find stuff I write, you can find my website, Seth Singleton Storyteller. You can find positive stuff, which I'm really trying to push right now, uh, on Good News Network. And for Instagram, don't follow me. Follow my dogs, Bruno and Fiji. They're adorable. They'll brighten your day. And if I'm going to ask you to look up anything on social media about me, I, I figure fun, playful, adorable dogs who I'm proud to brag as their parent. Like, that. that's it. And should you, along those little meandering paths, find me on my official stuff, well, then leave me a message. You can leave anyone who is on this conversation a message on all your favorite podcasts uh, or all your social media platforms, whether it's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Tumblr, or YouTube. Just use the at symbol DC Comics News, um, where you can also find me writing news and reviews, which I totally didn't mention a minute ago. Uh, but if you leave that at symbol and capital D, capital C, capital C, O-M-I-C-S, capital N-E-W-S on one of those social media channels, you can let us know what you thought about this or any episode or find us individually. You can find the podcast on all the major platforms like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever podcast you're listening to just rate review tell us why we're five stars we know it but we love hearing it from you you can also make sure that you never miss out on great content like 
Mad Love, a Harley Quinn cast, which is our vulgar other side. Uh, great stuff like Steve J. Ray, who hosts I Am The Night, uh, episode-by-episode breakdown of Batman the Animated Series. Uh, my own spinner rack, my top five picks from DC Comics. The future coming for Brad Felicki with Felicki Fashions. Yes, I don't care if we have a guest star. I will promote Ooh, this for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> Felicki Fashions, the podcast. And then, Liam, I wanted to extend something to you at the end. We always give this little thing at the end where we say, and as always, read more comics. Uh, when we try and do it as a group, it's usually a really fun cacophony. And we do a, a really oh, simple should... So there's an and as always pause read more comics are, are you down just say very 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 quickly yeah that just in case anyone's worried i'm pretty damn sure the lizard got away <laughs> Yay! wow lizards, Batman. i'm just gonna say it man that right there is clutch commentary you do have a future in broadcasting way to hold <laughs> on to that narrative and bring us back around to what everyone's been asking about the whole time what happened with the cat and the lizard we now know it's escaped we, we know that it's off living a new adventure, surviving a near-death right. experience. What so, way to fit that in, Liam? So you're going to jump in with us on the Read so More Comics? the final comics? line is, what do I, tell me again. The final line is, Read More Comics. Read and More we, Comics, absolutely. We always say, and as always, and there's like a one-second pause, and then we all try and say it together. You ready for this? I'm there. All right. Um, so, folks, and as always, Read, read More Comics. <laughs> Comics. Oh, Comics. <laughs> <laughs> and that, my friends, has been an amazing conversation with Mr. Liam Sharp. Liam, uh, you're a prince, sir. I've said it more than once. I'm happy to repeat it again. Thank you for making this a great time.